Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I am joined once again by my good friend and business partner, the the young Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. <laughs> the irrepressible. That's what I thought you were going to say. I thought if he pulls off irrepressible, I'm going to be hugely impressed. Irrepressible. That's kind of like, help, I'm being repressed. <laughs> no. That word doesn't uh, make it into my day-to-day vernacular. That's why I thought it was going to be impressive if you pulled that off. Well, And then you didn't, and here we are still talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> So, hello. I do apologize if my throat is letting me down today. <laughs> I I have a small frog in it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can't help yourself. You knew what you were doing. You knew what you were doing. <laughs> I'm sorry. The back of my throat is just a little tight today. <laughs> so, you're such a 12-year-old boy. <sighs> Speaking of... No, I don't have anything there. Um, <laughs> so, so, Jason, today launches season four of One Nation Under Whiskey. Mm-hmm. This is the fourth season that we're in now. I meant to say that to you. I meant to say, yes, welcome to season four. But I forgot because of my throat and all of your immature shenanigans. I didn't say anything. I just chuckled a little. I... <laughs> I really, it's interesting what you read into. (laughs) Can you believe that A, we've been doing this now for just over three years into our fourth year and, and that B, our listenership is actually growing. We've, we've not turned any, anyone away. I wouldn't say we haven't turned anyone away. I would say we're turning people on faster than we're turning people away. Oh, okay. You, you think we're losing people? Of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you heard you? <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt. I'm amazed we've got the listeners that we have. I tell you, uh, with with that in mind, you know, I like to look at our you know, various reviews on on Apple Podcasts, and mm. and we did get a new one, but then I also like looking at the numbers, and and for the most part, everyone is giving us a four or five star review, but there's one person that gave us a one star review. Was that me? <laughs> God, enough of this. <laughs> you should see the guy I have to record this podcast with. One star. <laughs> so yeah, so I guess we found someone who said, you know what? Screw these guys. Not only am I going to stop listening to them, I'm going to let my voice be heard and give them That's it. a star. That- yeah, if I can turn anyone else off from listening to the this horrible podcast, I will have done my duty. So so what do they say? Do they have words to go along with that one star? Thankfully, no. Oh, really? They were just like, fuck this shit. I hate it. Boom. Move on with our life. We can, we can guess all we like, uh, but there were no <laughs> words attached to it. The, the one star doesn't look like an angry one star. It's just, it's just a star. <laughs> You're so 
<laughs> You're such an optimist. <laughs> Sickening how much of an optimist you are. What if he meant uh, he or she meant to do five? Or they? Or or they? Uh, meant to do five, and as their mouse was hovering over the fifth star, their respective other or friend or dog in the room says says something, and they turn to the left really quickly, <laughs> and along with that turn comes the mouse, and they accidentally click the one star instead of the five. Do you think there's any Zapruder film of them turning back into the left, back into the left, back, back into, into the, the left? left? I'll have to check with my friends over at uh, Grassy Knoll Productions. I'll have to get back to you on that one. <laughs> I, I, and it might not even be as complicated as, as that conspiracy theory. I, I've seen it on places like Yelp or movie reviews or even Amazon where somebody has absolutely sung the praises of a restaurant or a product um, and, and they've clicked one star. You know, I, th- I think mm. for some people you're actually creating the shadow is your actual feelings about it, not the prompt color one. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like yeah. it's like your version of scale from one to ten. Most people say ten is the best, but that other, pe- other people say, well, no, one. You want to be number one. I, I think that's possible. What I'm describing, though, is if there are five stars available and mm. you can make them all shiny, bright gold, yeah. some people think the star should actually be like a dark gray. And so they'll click on the one, make it mm. gold, mm-hmm. while leaving four of them in the gray. Wow. And they think the four gray ones are their rating. Who's the people optimist are, now? <laughs> people are very complicated, Joshua. Very complicated. People. You, know, you know what you've taught me? Uh, people are horrible. <laughs> no, <laughs> that people are gonna people. Uh, people, people is gonna people. People's gonna people. Um, so what's the what's the positive one that you were reading? So we got one from J M at nineteen eighty, hmm. and the title of it just says "excellent" with one exclamation point. Very positive. Yep. And five stars attached to this review. And it says, learning a lot and hope to see more wild turkey pad costs. Hey! Yeah, it, you know, it's true. We've had Eddie Russell on this twice. We've had Bruce Russell. You know who I'd like to get? I'd love to get Benny Hurwitz on this. Benny's a good lad. Right? He's a lot of fun. It's. I find it so interesting that for wild turkey, you mentioned wild turkey, and if you are a wild turkey fan or you know anything about them, you know you've heard of Jimmy Russell. Maybe you've seen his picture. Maybe you're a bit more into it, and you, you definitely know Jimmy, and you know Eddie Russell's been around for 30-plus years, and maybe you've heard of Bruce, and that's the way... I've always pictured wild turkeys that they put the Russell family front and center. And what I found interesting is Benny, I think, has now been with them for a couple of years. And they seem to be putting him out there, too, alongside with Bruce. So it was nice to see someone else being able to champion uh, wild turkey in a similar way that the Russells are. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, he would be a lovely guy to get on. Yep. You know, on the subject of wild turkey, I think David Jennings is somebody we should probably have on a future episode. 
I think so too. You know, yeah, you know, a wild so turkey super fan who knows more about wild turkey than just about anybody we know, and is certainly somebody that many people turn to for wild turkey information as well. And if you don't know who David Jennings is, dear listener, <laughs> uh, David is in charge of rare bird. Yeah, David is in charge of rarebird101.com. He, which is a completely wild turkey centric. Um, blog, and he's working on a book as well. Actually, I think the book might be complete. And it's well, we should definitely to to talk print. to him about the book. Yeah, so that so, would make good sense. So to JM at nineteen eighty, uh, we will definitely have some more wild turkey content going on here. Uh, it's just a, a matter of time. So let's talk about other people that we've always wanted to interview. Because one of them is the subject of today's episode. When you and I first got together, now four years ago, well, just a hair over three years ago, did you ever think we'd be able to get someone like John Glazer onto the podcast? Just, just to pause that for one second, when you and I got together just a hair over three years ago to create the podcast, mm-hmm. we've been in business for nine, ten years. Well, yeah. Did, did I imply otherwise? You just kind of left out the clarifying detail. That was all. Okay. So here we are. So what, Clar- yeah, Detail has been clarified. Okay. Unpin it. Did I think we'd get John Glazer? Of course. Oh, okay. Are you when really? did I think it would happen? Yeah. No idea. You However, really are the optimist today. <laughs> However, hey, we had... We had all the time in the world. I knew we'd get him at some point in the future. Yeah, but but thankfully, James Saxon, who is a tremendous friend of the podcast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and is now blending with Compass Box, was able to make a suitable introduction yeah. for us. Yeah, I think if you look on the back of the Compass Box bottling called the Spaniard, you'll find. James Saxon's name on there, as well as Jill, I think is 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 also another blender working under working under John. So you're going to start seeing James's good name on more and more bottlings moving forward, which which I think is incredibly cool, and I'm so jealous. But you know, anyway, <laughs> I took a dark turn. Uh, <laughs> I was going to add uh-huh. while. The main focus of today's episode is John Glazer. Listeners will hear a few snippets from James Saxon Mm -hmm. as John brought him into the conversation. Correct. And you and I were able, while we were in London, while we were at the Compass Box Labs, tasting rooms, which was an absolute treat, we were able to dedicate some time to James himself. Mm -hmm. And we will have a half episode dedicated just to James Saxon and getting a sense of his journey that brought him to Compass Box Mm. in London. Mm -hmm. Because clearly John Glazer, Compass Box, very, very, very well-known commodities, but James less so. And having a half episode dedicated to James Mm -hmm. and his journey on how he came to this point, especially for a young man, I'm definitely envious. He has a whole lot of whiskey life ahead of him. And I'm excited to see what he does. Well, 
Yeah, we'll talk about when that half air half episode will will air in just a moment. But James's youth surprised me because he is a young guy. He's he's in his late twenties, right? Yeah, mid to late twenties. Now he was doing Scotch Odyssey way back when you and I were doing our blog, which mm-hmm. means he must have been twelve at the time when he was riding around visiting he, I, distilleries. I, I, uh, he might even have been eight years old at that time. It was, wow. it was remarkable, yeah. Wow, just just yeah. a babe. If he'd lived 30, 40 years ago, they would have just put him straight down the mines. Uh, <laughs> but instead, he lived in a freer time, and he was able to use his energy to bicycle to different distilleries, learning, you know, all about them. <sighs> so that was just a, a, a way of telling the listeners, you will hear from James Saxon today. Mm-hmm. John Glazer will be the focus, but there is more James Saxon up our sleeves. And after this episode drops February 26, people will be able to hear more about James Saxon in the half episode on March 4. That is correct. Look at you doing math and or looking at a calendar. Nope, just math all off the top wow. of my head. Wow, well done. Yeah. You're a lucky man. Lucky to have me as a business partner and friend. Let's oh, not forget that. Yeah, Good not, friend. Yep, let's not forget that. <laughs> so, so anything else we need to say? Or I've set the scene. We were we were at the offices. Well, this was yeah. back in January. Back in January, you and I flew into Heathrow <laughs> and and hopped into a taxi immediately. Mm-hmm. Drove straight to the Compass Box Delicious Whiskey Company's address. And got uh, a cup of tea, lovely cup of tea, brewed lovely. by uh, brewed by James. He's a wonderful and, blender. He's yeah. also a wonderful brewer of tea. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! To to set the scene, we were in, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, Jason. We had tea in what was the old blending room, mm-hmm. but we met to discuss whiskey in the new blending room with a little treat, courtesy of Mister Glazer. I was surprised to see him walk into the door. Well, he didn't walk into the door. He walked through the door. Well, he didn't even walk through the door because he's not an apparition. He opened the door, walked through the doorway, and and in his hand he had a frosty bottle of Compass Box Hedonism. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. And we we kicked off the meeting with this fun little shot of of frozen hedonism and. It tasted great chilled. Mm-hmm. It did. It was sweet, crisp, little fruity, and really hit the spot. <laughs> hit the spot. It hit the spot, and, indeed. And really hit the spot after a transatlantic red eye. Uh-huh. Uh, and the last thing that I want to tell people, because we did, we jumped right into this, uh, the conversation lasted about an hour and 20, hour and 25 minutes, and that's all being laid out here. I did little, if any, editing in the conversation. There wasn't a lot, excuse me, there wasn't a lot to remove. Uh, so you're going to have a nice, long, very in-depth conversation with us, John Glazer, and the good James Saxon as well. If you're not driving, pour yourself something by Compass Box and start listening.
The one thing that I want to ask to kick off the conversation was really about if we could just lay down the groundwork of the beginning of Compass Box, because to be honest, I wasn't aware that it had started 20 years ago. I thought it was more 15-ish, you know, 13, 15 years ago. Uh, but that could just be me and my history within the <laughs> knowing whiskey. Because I'm young. Um, Nobody says that to him. No one says that to me. Uh, so if you could just go over the, the start of Compass Box, the idea behind it, that would be great. Well, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, this month I was driving around Scotland um, before starting and really getting the business off the ground, just trying to talk to anybody in Scotland who would take a meeting with me. Hmm. Everyone from you know, the founder of Adelphi, uh, Jamie Walker, to you know, the... Um, up at Gordon McPhail, and uh, I would ask everybody the same question. I would tell them, you know, I'm, I'm going to start a small Scotch whiskey blending house, you know, and it's, we're going to make, you know, high-end fancy blends from really good casks and really good distilleries and and show the world that blending is about creativity. And, and this is 20 years ago when the Scotch whiskey industry was really in the doldrums. You know, global sales were flat or declining, depending yeah. on the year. Single malts were growing, but it's very small segment of the category and a lot of, you know the brands that were emerging at that time you know the people who knew about them thought that oh, these there's rules around single malts and it's not for me it's for old dudes and stuff yeah yeah and i wanted to you know play a role in trying to change all that and uh, what i would ask everybody is you know how come no one's done this before hmm. you know I, I i came from the world of wine in the United States and you know all these small businesses and entrepreneurs had been getting into wine over the decades at that point 20 years ago mm-hmm. how come it's not happening in Scotch whiskey and people would say things well John you know you just have to understand it's you know it's not an entrepreneurial culture like the United States um, there are lots of barriers to entry it's hard uh, you know it's expensive and I just nobody convinced me I shouldn't do it yeah there's just lots of reasons why it hadn't been done and uh, yeah, and that the one trip I'm thinking of in particular is when I did start off in Edinburgh with Jamie Walker. Yeah, that really did convince me that you know just because no one's done it before doesn't mean it's not a good idea. And then in March of 2000, I incorporated the business Compass Box Delicious Whiskey Limited. I wanted it to be a Scottish business, but Amy, my my dear wife, was not interested in moving to Scotland. <laughs> Fair enough. So we I had to get a registered address. So I picked. Uh, this financial services company on Great King Street in Edinburgh. Oh, okay. And that was the home of Compass Box, there or at least go. the mailing address. Yeah. <laughs> for many years. And then on, in October, on October 25th, uh, we bottled the first batch of hedonism. You um, launched with hedonism. We did. We launched with oh, hedonism. Wow, grain. Bottled at Gordon McPhail. Yeah. Good friends at Gordon McPhail did that for us. You know, my, my first blending room was about a mile and a quarter from where you're sitting right now, mm-hmm. across the river, across the Thames in Kew, in my house. That was the kitchen table, which was about the size of the table we're around right now. The four of us was my, was my blending room. Yeah. And uh, I'd amassed, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of cask samples. I wanted to start with grain whiskey, dozens and dozens of cask samples of grain whiskey. And in the end, the first batch of hedonism was just two casks. One... One 20-year-old cask of Caledonian. Oh, wow. Okay. And one 10-year-old cask of Canvas, both first fill barrels. Beautiful, beautiful expression, perfect examples of perfect maturation as far as yeah. I was concerned. And together, 
they created something I just thought was magical. You know, the depth of the 20-year-old Caledonian, the more bright, f- fresh fruit of the, uh, and vanilla character and bourbon character of the 10-year-old canvas was magical. Mm. Had nothing to do with the fact they were closed distilleries. <laughs> they just happened to be. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was a nice selling point in the end. But uh, that was the first batch of hedonism, October 25th. So, okay. 2000. That seems like a quick turnaround from being in Scotland looking for meetings in the January to having your first release in the October. At the time, did you feel like it was moving quickly? Or did that feel like an eternity to you as you were crossing the T's and dotting all the I's? Yeah, I think, yeah. I guess it did feel like an eternity at the time. Um, and, and, you know, when people come in and ask me about starting their own business, whether it's a whiskey business or whatever it might be, one of the things I always tell people is everything is going to take twice as long as you thought and cost twice as much. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Um, good advice. Yep. Yep. <laughs> as your original business plan would suggest. So it did uh-huh. seem like an eternity between that January trip. And I'd been getting samples before then, but, uh, and finally getting it together. And literally, I mean, I bottled it on October 25th, Gordon McPhail. It was a weekday morning. I, I have to look at exact day. It doesn't really matter, but Amy was pregnant now at this point, and we were up at Gordon mm-hmm. McPhail. We drove up from London. I wanted to oversee the bottling. I was sitting at the Kugelke Hotel. Um, yeah. Sorry, um, I wasn't sitting at Kugelke. I was sitting at um, the Highlander Inn in Kugelke yeah. uh, on this trip in the bar downstairs, numbering the labels the night before the bottling. Wow. You know, individually numbered labels. And the next morning, even I went over there and they bottled and labeled. And by lunchtime, I had my, the boot of my car, the trunk of my car filled up with cases and Away we went. I drove down to Edinburgh and sold my first two cases to Royal Mile Whiskies. Yeah, it's boom. As, as guys with an American company, it, it's mind-boggling that you can just go from the bottling line to the boot of your car back to London and start selling. It yeah. just it was the same day. We was down to Edinburgh first. Unbelievable. So, anyway, thank you to Keir Sword again for that. <laughs> <laughs> what was the push? Why? Why? Why blending? What about blending made you say? this is something I desperately want to do. Was there something you fell in love with? Was there, what was that spark for you? The spark was the moment I walked into the blending room and met Maureen Robinson for the first time, back when I worked for that little brand called Johnny Walker that you guys may have. I've heard of that. Passing Um, fad. (laughs) 200 year passing fad. Um, yeah, that, so you know that's how I got into the world of whiskey. Was being hired by Johnny Walker in the U.S. and they moved me over here. And but before I moved over here, I was on a, my first Scotland trip. And uh, we can laugh. I'll make you laugh later and show you the the video from that first trip when I was in the Talisker Distillery. Um, that first day, the first distillery trip on Sky mm-hmm. on this crappy Monday morning in January, <laughs> and into the warehouse and and the, the distillery manager at the time was. I don't know if they would do this today with drawing cast samples and letting us, you know, and so putting cast samples in the measuring cylinder and it's like, go ahead, John, take a taste. And that moment was a real epiphany for me for whiskey because the moment that Talisker hit my lips and you can see it in a little video, I'll, we'll have a laugh over later. There's like, it's like you're watching an epiphany. (laughs) Wow. You can see, I was just like, yeah, this is good. But then later that trip, we'd visited, I think we hit 10 distilleries in a week and at the end of the trip, we were in, in Edinburgh, where Maureen was based at the time. And I remember being brought into her blending room and seeing all around sort of the perimeter of the room, these nosing glasses mm. filled with whiskey. 
and different cask samples and in the center of the room, this big measuring cylinder. And, and she was going around nosing various things to make sure these various components were what they were supposed to be. And bam, into the measuring cylinder they would go. And she was creating a what we call a prototype of a, of a blend recipe. And at that point, when I see, saw all the glasses around the room and the different colors, and I'm nosing them myself, sure. and all these different... Uh, all these different expressions around the room. I th- that moment for me was when I realized that actually blending is about creativity. Yeah. Blending isn't just this way to, you know, bish together lo- you know, large quantities of whiskey for big global brands. What it can be is based on the decisions of an individual. It can be a creative art. Do you find yourself as you're tasting a whiskey? And, and I say this because I imagine a blender's mind might be different from a, a drinker's mind. As you're tasting a whiskey, do you, all of a sudden start thinking, that could be an interesting component because of A, B, and C. Like, do you find yourself doing that even just well, in regular I, drinking? I suppose the answer is yes. I guess it's kind of like anything. It's maybe even like, you know, when you're cooking or something or trying to, you're like, you taste something, it's like, oh, that's, that's, that's really good. But you know what? If you added, if we just added more salt. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Or, or it needs a little, <laughs> a little um, soy sauce. <laughs> or, um, I suppose that's probably, yeah, maybe what goes on. So, so I want to bring you back a little bit here as you're sitting at your kitchen table uh, on the other side of the Thames from where we are. You clearly saw, as you just said, the creativity that could go into blending and does go into blending. Um, You clearly had a calling towards that, but in creating a business, where did you think the market lay? What did you see as your future success? Well, I think maybe the, the answer to the question is, you know, why did I start the business? And I started the business because I thought that Scotch whiskey was this great undiscovered beverage mm. for so many people around the world who might who are interested in good stuff. And again, this is twenty going on twenty years now because there was a couple of years, several years before this, when I was working for the big company, where I was thinking, you know, what we need is not another ad campaign by a, a, a huge global drinks brand yeah. to try to change the way people think about Scotch whiskey. What we need are small businesses run by sincere individuals who are trying to make a difference mm-hmm. telling people what they think because you know people are much more likely to listen to one sincere individual than they are to you know uh, an ad campaign from a huge global brand i thought at the time so i started the business to try to make play a role in making the world of scotch whiskey a more interesting place yeah and to draw more people to it um, and by doing things differently um, but still, but always adhering to what, in my mind, was this idea of quality, of, of, of what we call here around here, compelling quality. Mm-hmm. Not just quality, but compelling quality. Whiskey's things that make you go back to the glass, that draw you back to the yeah. glass. Yeah. That's really, the, to yeah. me, the definition of, of a good whiskey. Sure. You, know, you just want to go back for more. Yeah. And so, uh, to me, in the beginning, and the reason we, I started with something esoteric, like a grain whiskey hedonism was I wanted to do a couple things at once, I guess, um, which is a problem I frequently have in life is trying to do too many things at the same time <laughs> is like this story um, is, is show people a side of whiskey that most people, even whiskey enthusiasts didn't know about what grain whiskey can be when it's mm. aged in good casks, surprise people. 
And we did that not just with the liquid, but also with this label that has this woman's head on it with all this shit coming out of her head. This is unusual <laughs> Scotch whiskey label for its time. But I also wanted to engage, the, as I said before, the whiskey enthusiasts, people who are into it, and show them that there's a seriousness of intent behind this company, Compass Box, and try to get them to join me. Realizing that if ultimately what we really want to do is bring more people into the world of whiskey, yeah. and not just bring, you know, create more whiskey and geeks like myself at the time, um, we need to bring in people who are just interested in good stuff, but don't want to necessarily geek out about it. Well, it's going to be easier to get there if you've got the credibility of the people who know what they're talking about. Mm. And so that was the original idea. Let's spend some years building up a reputation, you know, because if I came out with a you know, artist blend, blended Scotch whiskey, 40 pounds, $40 a bottle in, in 2000, this American guy, people would have been like, huh, who cares? Uh-huh. <laughs> so we spent many years building up a reputation with not just grain whiskey, but then we went into, you know, single malt blends, blended malts, fatted malts, whatever you want to call them. Um, and we did blended scotches along the way, a style and so forth. But it was about building up credibility, mm. and then it took us, you know, dozen years before we launched our first blended Scotch whiskey artist blend that we w- that we launched as something we thought could bring more people into the world. We had a silo, and it was it was kind of in the shadows of some of the malt whiskeys and things we were doing at the time. But that's a really long-winded. No, answer no, to your question. But, but, but I think it's, I think it's <laughs> Did I get on. to the answer? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. What, what I hear from you is you liked it. You thought you'd find somebody else who liked it. Yeah. And then they would find somebody else who liked it, and yeah. so it would go. Yeah. That's exactly what we did. Yeah. It was like, yeah. we're into this. We're digging yeah. this. I'm sure yeah. we'll find some people, and then we've yeah. built a nation around yeah, it. Yeah, th- exactly. I think you get, you get to a point in that kind of journey, and I, I started, as I said, in the wine business, and when I got out of college, I thought I wanted to be a winemaker. That's what I'm going to do. And I got into the wine business and followed that path for many years. And you, I, my life was tasting wine, you know, mm. especially when it was in retail and, and wholesale. And, and you start to develop, you know, get good at organoleptic assessment and you get interested in stuff and you try to understand it and, and, and deconstruct it and go help make it and see where it's made and help make it. And then you, you really understand things. And, and at the same time, what was really helpful for me was when I was working in retail wine. Because then you're, you're tasting a lot and you're developing your own sure. thoughts. But then you're also, you can test your theories on your customers. I mean, say that in a positive way. And you get, instant, <laughs> you get very, almost instant feedback. What, what do people like? What do, yeah. what do you know, most people like or, and why? And that's the really important question. It's not what do they like. It's why, why they, like they it like it or why do they not like it. So that was really instructive in those years how, how before would, I got into whiskey. How would you go about pulling that information from them, discovering why they liked what they liked? Well, I, I can't remember exactly the, the tricks and tips or the tricks I used back then in the wine days, but today it's just asking the question, you know, yeah. which one did you like? Why? <laughs> okay, okay. I think it's as simple yeah, as that. Okay. What did it, did it remind you of something? Um, how did it make you feel on your palate? Um, you start to, to oh, comparative is, is helpful as well. Mm. Why'd you like that one more than that one? Oh, because this one has what and that one doesn't? It's just exactly drilling into it. Okay, okay. Yeah. Do you find people have success articulating that? Um, one of the things we run into is, oh, it tastes a lot like whiskey, and <laughs> and then we say, well, which whiskey did you prefer? Oh, that one. Why? I don't know. It just kind of, you know, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and I I feel uncomfortable 
putting people on the spot or keeping people on the spot. Yeah. And so invariably, I'm like, oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you liked something, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you find people were able to articulate, or was it just yes? Well, no, people I, to find some who there's, a, I think, a stage in everyone's development where you don't have the confidence to articulate things, or yeah. most many people don't, and that's fine. They just haven't learned the language yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you, that same person who said that tastes like whiskey, and you might say to them, "What do you prefer, Pepsi or Coke?" Yep. And they can tell you why. I can tell you which one and why. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's it's what are you comfortable, accustomed to, confident about talking about? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And that get- develops over time. Well, I, I do what you just did a moment ago, which is I get people to go back into the kitchen. Because invariably people, if they go to a restaurant, they know at least what they want to avoid. And that's a starting point. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about what you want to avoid. Yeah, and, and then, why you want to avoid. And then mm-hmm. build on that. You know, sure. Do you like peppery things? Do you like sweet things? But it is a language that, whether we're talking wine or beer or whiskey or whatever, they're, they're, these are languages. And, and some people... Some people just try. You know, we all have friends you know, when you're your first trip abroad and you're with a friend who like, can speak five words and like, is trying to have a conversation with, an intellectual conversation with the girl at the bar, right? Like, just stop. You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> some people just go with what they have and whatever. And some people are a little more cautious. And, you know, I, I want to be able to string together sentences before I get into that kind of situation, right? Okay, when we, I, we do a lot of work in France, and I never speak French anymore in the French market. For the first years when I was on my own in the business, or even in years when we, you know, I wasn't, I would, I would go to France on my own and try to speak my really bad French. And, and then I hired, uh, and then when we hired Celine and, and Chris, Maven, in, those, in the old days, when they, and they, they spoke French, fluent French. So I'd go over to them, and they would speak fluent French. I wouldn't have to speak French anymore. And I just I used to think, Wow, sales were taking off finally. I was thinking, well, it's because until Chris and Celine came along, all the French people thought I was an idiot. Wow. <laughs> terrible American French accent. <laughs> yeah, I learned my. Yeah, anyway. Uh, so, so I have a question. This might be the last question about the old days, and then we'll maybe bring it up to mm. speed on after that, unless Joshua wants to ask something else. They weren't that old, actually, because Chris and Celine are still quite young. <laughs> We had a good night with Chris in America in San Francisco. Yeah, we did. It was a jolly good time. Um, The the release of of kind of a a double cask, uh, you know, these these two casks of grain. Mm. If if that came out in 2000, what was a a double cask release received like? In 2000, were people clearly looking for big global blends? Obviously, we had Cadenheads, we had the the very beginning of Signatory, but we had Gordon McPhail, who you've, you've mentioned, who were doing their own single cask releases. Well, what did a double cask release look like in 2000? Nobody really, at that point, was all that fixated on how many casks, really. Um, and I think that even back in those days, yeah, Gordon McPhail's and Signatories would have been doing single casks, but also probably, certainly with Gordon McPhail, their bread and butter would have been on uh, their lines that were not single casks. They might have been single malts, but they were mm-hmm. blends of different mm-hmm. casks. And so, yeah, that, that wasn't a thing back then, really. And, and what people were really curious about with that release was, okay, this is grain whiskey. What, grain whiskey, isn't that neutral? Isn't that, uh, what? what? Yeah, it has yeah. to be aged in oak, really? So it was really just teaching a lot of people what it is and talking about the, the quality of the casks and and then, you know, what's up with your label? 
And why, are, why don't you have a Scottish accent? <laughs> That's kind of the reaction to the uh, double cast that I released back then. <laughs> was, was branding and labeling still very twee at that time? Was it still the, the shortbread tin approach to, to Scotch sales? For the industry? For sure, yeah. And that's why, yeah, I mean, now, now I can tell you a story about being standing in the Kregeliki Hotel, actually. <laughs> one day my, my, when I was still working for the big company, and you know, for whatever reason, I was the last person up that, that evening in the Kregeliki Hotel Quake Bar, and I remember just you know, standing there in that bar by myself late one night, looking around. They had, in those days, I haven't been there in several years, but they used mm-hmm. to have all the whiskeys around the perimeter of the room on this one shelf. <laughs> now they probably have many shelves. In any case, but I remember looking at them all and thinking, golly, why does it seem like every Scotch whiskey label has to look like it was designed in the time of Queen Victoria? <laughs> and so when, we start, when I started Compass Box, yeah, I said to Chris Edmonds, you know, my first design partner, I said, I want you to take this out to Pluto. I want this to look like nothing else that's uh-huh. ever existed in Scotch whiskey. And one of the ways we did that was using a woman's face on the label and <laughs> 20 years later no one has ever been able to 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 dispute the fact that we believe that's the first ever scotch whiskey label that had a woman's face on the label wow interesting at least it was commercialized okay yeah we've got a lot that's of old books and stuff on labels but anyway for what that's worth yeah, yeah, i think yeah. it's worth something yeah. did you then find people just rejected it out of hand because it didn't look like uh, a traditional whiskey label was there discomfort it was, there? It was different in different people? parts of the world. So in Scotland in 2000, and shortly thereafter, 2001, when I started the business, I got a really warm reception most places I went. Because again, back then, remember, Scotch whiskey was not doing well. The, you know, mm-hmm, there were right. way too many, too much aged inventory in many of the warehouses around the industry. Sales were not, they were flat or declining. And... I think at that point, people in Scotland, certainly people who were close to Scotch whiskey or close to the industry, they appreciated anybody, even some crazy American guy coming in and trying to do something with the national drink. Wow, okay. Now, down here in England, it was a different thing where I got a lot more sniffy people. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, who are you? Why do you have an American accent? And what is this? Interesting. <laughs> kind of a thing. Wow. Yeah, that, so, so I was going to ask that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then when I went over to the US, on the other hand, um, you know, in general, you know, in the U.S., I would go to whiskey festivals, the early days of Whiskey Fest and, and World of Whiskeys and all that. And uh, so people who were interested in the subject and more open-minded about it, and, and I think, and, and certainly compared to the U.K., there were more people then who were learning and knew they were learning, but were just interested. Mm. And I think also... In America, if you're interested in alcohol beverages, you're, you know a little bit about what's going on in the world of wine. And what we were doing didn't look so crazy to an American uh, as it did to maybe an English person uh, at the time. Hmm. So we got a warmer reception in the U.S. too. Wow. Then in Belgium. It was, oh. <laughs> oh. <Yeah. laughs> no, actually, I'm joking about Belgium. But, uh, but as you get into Northern Europe, there would seem to be two kinds of people. Um, the people who would just look past the label, doesn't matter what it is, and it, I want to know what it tastes like, and if it's really good, I like you, yeah. and I like what you're doing. Yeah. And the people who um, just, like, if it didn't say single malt and Lafroig or mm-hmm. Macallan, <laughs> they just didn't uh-huh, get it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm talking 20 years yeah. ago. That was yeah, a long yeah. time ago, guys. Uh-huh. That still definitely exists, still exists, though, is the, the um, affixing on the big distillery name and that's something that we have tried to grapple with 
with varying degrees of success. Uh, what, what do you mean a T and and where's the Macallan? You're like, well, yeah. just try the That's... try the T and You might like it. But I, well, I can tell you, with 20 years of perspective on this, things change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things change. Yeah. Perceptions change. Well, that's we've really done well. We've had a kind of a, a string of of interviews and episodes where we've been able to talk history with people, and and we've had Stuart Nickerson. We've covered forty years. Uh, we just had Ali Walker, who's had a very active twenty two, twenty three years. Uh, get to come in and talk to you with a very good twenty years. Like it's clearly in the grand scheme of things, it's it's not a long time, but. Listening to how whiskey has moved in 40 years and how it's accelerated in the last mm. 20 years and thinking about what it's done in the 10 years that we've been in business, mm. it's it's spinning a little bit right now. Like It's yeah. a little bit crazy. Yeah. Uh, and so I love the perspective. I always love historical context for what we're seeing. And, and so my follow-up to you on the how, we're, how was a double cask received when people weren't too phased by it, uh, but they wanted to learn about grain. Have you seen that switch? Have people now come to accept grain, but now they want to know how many casks you've put into, yeah. a, into a release? For sure, yeah. Yeah. yeah now, now there's a, you know, a lot of people who follow what we do. Yeah, they want to know everything. And uh, you know, there, there are people... Um, James, what do you call them, the people who... Who want to buy everything we make? <laughs> the completists. The completists. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Well, I like that. Yes. Um, the completists. Uh, there's lots of completists. These compass box completists around them. Yeah. And they, to be a completist, you have to know what's what, and you want to know what's what. And so, yeah, we have people emailing us regularly, and, and, and Jill could really speak to this because she picks up all those emails every day. People saying, you know, I've got this bottle of hedonism from 2003. Can you tell me what the cask makeup was? Can you tell me what the... <laughs> wow. And we've got the records. You've got the records, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, but uh, they need to know. They want they, to they know. They want to know. And that's fair enough. And that's, I, I, that's one of the things that we did differently from the beginning. And that was just inspired by my wine background and the kinds of wineries and winemakers that I really admired. They were just completely open about everything. Mm. They would tell you everything. One of my you know, wine heroes, Calera, Josh Jensen from Calera, even, even to this, you know, his labels seem like they've never changed, but of course the back labels all changed because you look at the back of the label and some of his wines he'll draw from maybe a dozen different vineyards for some of his bottlings. Oh, wow. And he's got the vineyard name and the percentage from that vineyard and all the geeky detail on the cast types and what the sugar was at harvest and the pH and... Um, what else does he include? Um, filtration information. He puts it all on the back label. And I always thought, why don't Scotch whiskey producers do that? You know, why? And back 20 years ago, nobody was talking about casks, really, mm. to speak of. I mean, Bill mm. Lumsden and Glenn Morangy were, were really getting, going back on that stuff back then. But really in the industry, you didn't talk about casks. And I remember even in the early years, taking our whiskeys around, talking about you know, teaching whiskey enthusiasts about the kind of flavors you get from whiskeys aged in former sherry casks versus an American oak cask or American oak whiskey barrel. So where am I going with this? Yeah, people want to know and they have the right to know and more and more people every year join those ranks of people mm. who want to know all the stuff. But you've got a bit of an obstacle in front of you because the SWA doesn't allow all the information that you would 
want. Am I, I I'm, I'm going to use the example of Aaron's uh, Devil's Punch Bowl series. Mm-hmm. So the very first one, they listed out all of the casks, all of the ages, all of the fills, everything like that. They released it, and then SWA said, don't do that again. And I know you've had your wrestling matches with the SWA as well. Is, is, are things changing? Are they relaxing rules? Or do you find yourself doing more three-year-old deluxe whiskey <laughs> ideas and, and things like that? Like, how do you find yourself navigating that as more people are looking for that information? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the one thing that we did for the first 15 years of the business or 15, 16 years of the business until three, four years ago, that we aren't doing at the moment was publishing on the website and every, you know, all our, all our brochures, not just the distilleries we source from for every recipe. Okay, we do that. Um, not just the wood types, the cast types, we do that, but we would we told people the age of every single component. So when I started this conversation, we are talking about a 10-year-old canvas and a 20-year-old Caledonia. Now, mm. in saying that, I technically broke the law right. because there is a law that exists in, in, in EU and UK law that prohibits spirits producers from communicating in any way the age of a component in a blend, a spirit blend, unless it's the youngest. You can only talk about the youngest. And so that... Okay, we, we knew that law existed for the first 15, 16 years in the business, but I chose to I admit it, I chose to ignore it because I didn't think it made any, it didn't apply to us. The spirit mm-hmm. of that law didn't apply to a company like us, inspired by Josh Jensen and the Clara Winery, where we, we're giving you percentages to one decimal point of mm-hmm. every component in our blends, if you want it, and all the detail on the distilleries and the cast types and the ages, because some people want to know and they have a right to know. And it helps people, if nothing else, when somebody turns a label around or sees on our website all that detail, it makes some people go from blending is about cheap whiskey, about Mm. fishing together whatever you have to make something that's commercially viable, to a point where they're like, wow, there's real intent behind this product. Purpose-driven blend, yeah. Yeah. And so they don't even have to understand what all the cast type means or even know the distilleries. Who, they don't even have to know Tinenic from whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but when some people see it, it just changes their perception of what they're dealing with yeah. in a positive way, I think, yeah. or can. Yeah. So that's, that was what you were getting at. So that's yeah, exactly. the law, yeah. the, the regulation that we, we think, we, you know, we, 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 we went to the industry three years ago with what we call our transparency campaign saying, you know, we were trying to very, take it very serious. It wasn't about rabble rousing. It wasn't about, you know, trying to generate publicity. It was about trying to do the right thing for the industry and say, okay, well, this, maybe this law doesn't, is outdated. Maybe it's not serving its purpose anymore, especially with companies like ours. And, and the interest consumers have increasingly with detail. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, had to, we didn't get them to change their mind then, but we're not done trying. <laughs> well, one of, one of the questions that, that came to us from a listener was, has the SWA cried uncle yet? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, more, the more you're on them about, about trying to change the rules to get them to say, okay, you know what, this decades-old rule is yeah. surely decades old and needs to be revised. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel you're on that path? Well, I, I like to think we're on the path. It just could take a long time because it's just, it, when people say it's the SWA, Scotch Whiskey Association, in this case, it's not just 
the employees of the Scotch Whiskey Association who are making mm. these decisions, they're doing, they exist because of what their members would like to see happen in the world of Scotch sure. whiskey to protect its interests. So now when you think about it that way, who are their members? You know, they're all the, the major big companies for the most part in Scotch whiskey. Now it's not just about convincing one or two people who sit inside the Scotch Whiskey Association. It's about convincing the, the industry. Mm. And that's a slightly larger task. Mm. And so, no, the industry has not cried uncle yet, <laughs> at least on the, the, the transparent, the, the age issue. Yeah. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, look what happened last year with the, 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 the change in the regulations around cast types. I was going to ask you yeah. about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's an example of the industry um, decide, when the industry decides, hey, this is in our best interest to evolve or change uh, a regulation, it can be done. So I remain hopeful. Okay. How is that going to affect you? Has that opened the palette for you? Has that, has that changed anything? Is this positive for, for you and Compass Box? Well, James, we don't have any whiskeys aging away in former Mezcal or tequila casks. So no, it has, it's not going to have an immediate <laughs> effect on, on us. No, it's, and nor do we have any, what, what else is now okay? Um, it was Cachaca cask okay? <laughs> nope, none of those. <laughs> no matter how it's what pronounced. What esoteric spirit could we? <laughs> Basically anything that isn't based on a stone fruit wine. Yes, exactly. Anything that's not stone fruit. Because the stone fruit wines, we all know, those are, those are evil. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Those are the work of the devil. <laughs> but no, I, that, that, that won't have... I, we don't see that having, I don't think, James, an, an impact on us in the near future. Um, mm. Although Calvados casks are now okay, right? They're okay, but we sort of jumped they the gun and before. just added Calvados. We just added Calvados in sauce, right? I, I think they've been okay for a little bit now. And I only say this, when, when Jason and I first started Single Cast Nation, Isle of Aaron said, we want to be your first release. And this was back in the day. I don't know if you know Andy Hogan. He, he had worked. He was with Brooklady, then he was with Aaron. And he had given us some Calvados cask samples. And we almost went with one of those, but but they had been using them for a while, and I know some other distilleries are using them. I wonder if those just kind of went under the radar if the SWA recently added them in. Anyway, not sure. Not sure. <laughs> um, what I can tell you is really good Calvados and really good Scotch whiskey aged in French oak or sherry casks is really tasty. You did a can. a blend recently of Calvados. <laughs> we can we can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. What, what Glad you brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pro level research happening here. Talk to us about affinity. How, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, you built that. There's a bottle in here somewhere. That was just something that it was like because <laughs> you guys live in the U.S. It was kind of like the Reese's thing. Remember, I, you grew up in the U.S., right? Yeah. So, Joshua, you remember those Reese's ads? Like oh, yeah, somebody, yeah. Your peanut butter yeah. went into my, my chocolate. chocolate. Your no, chocolate. your chocolate yeah, yeah. and my peanut butter kind of <laughs> crash. And, but this is really good. And um, I've loved Calvados for long, many years. Um, and since first going over to Normandy 20-plus years ago. And I think it's one of the great underrated, underappreciated, you know, fine spirits in the world. Mm. Classic spirits in the world. And whenever, you know, so you go to Normandy, you drink Calvados, you go to Normandy, there's apples, you eat a lot of apple products, apple tarts, tart tatan is classic. And Amy, when she, she's a baker, and she would frequently, in the years after we first went to Normandy, bake tart tatan. When she would bake tart tatan, what would I drink with it? I would drink Calvados. And, the, and it is one of the world's great food drink combinations. It just so, works so well together. And then somewhere over the years, 
Amy would bake tart tatin, and for some reason, I started drinking spice tree because oh, spice tree is a whiskey we make with. It's aged in French oak. You've got that lovely clove kind of character coming mm. through from the French oak. That should work well with apples. Sure enough, it did. And then there's some point, the Reese's moment. I can't recall exactly <laughs> when one evening, you know, maybe I don't know what happened, but I just thought, you know, I like spice tree and I like Calvados with this tart tatin. What if I combine them? Yeah. And I thought it tasted really, really good. So for years, we would have samples around here in the blending room and share them with visitors like yourselves mm. um, and say, well, what do you think? And finally, we just got the courage to, to do it one year. And I remember bringing Terry Benatar, our, our friend, longtime French importer, was over with his team and they, they were over to talk about um, creating something for an upcoming anniversary. They wanted to do something crazy, something really out there that had never been done before. And I remember sharing, and he's the most open-minded person we work with in the world. Terry's mm. amazing in that regard forward-thinking, forward-leaning guy. And I remember saying, here, try this, Terry. Now, you, what you have to know is in, Cal in France, Calvados has a really old man reputation. Uh, okay. 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 Despite how great it can be. Yeah. I said, Terry, what do you think? Scotch and Calvados. And he tried it. He just looked at me and said, John, do not do this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, coming from you, Terry Benetton. I don't ah. know what to make of this. But we did it anyway. Yeah. And in the end, Terry loved it. <laughs> wow. I was very happy okay. we did it. But he, and also he helped. He was instrumental. Okay. Because I, when I went back to him later after this and said, Terry, I'm going to do this. I'm going to blend Scotch and Calvados. Can you make an introduction to a Calvados producer? He is the distributor in France for um, Domaine Christian Druin. So he made an introduction to quite an open-minded, forward-thinking Calvados producer mm. is Guillaume Druin, and who runs the domain now for his family. And that's where we got the Calvados. And you just interviewed him for your website. Am I right in saying that? We did, yeah. We did a little, um, yeah, we did a cool little, short little interview with, with Guillaume for our, one of our newsletters, yeah. yeah. It was interesting to see the parallels between the two of you. Yeah, as I say, he you is. You saw creation and yeah. flavors. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's running an amazing business. If you're interested in Calvados, you need to seek out, you know, check out what they're doing and follow him on Instagram yeah. and go see his place when you're in Normandy. Well, we are and we will. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Easy peasy. <laughs> Um, I'm going to pivot to the, the quiet man at the table and give him a chance to, <laughs> yeah. to get on wax, yep, uh, no matter whether he wants to or not. So as we're talking you know, clearly to, to John about the founding of the company, we want to bring it into modern times, the modern era. Um, we were just talking with you before we started recording, and you made us some delicious tea. Thank you so much for that. Really it's exactly tea. what Excellent we needed tea. after stepping off of planes. You said you've been here for just a hair over one year. When you came to Compass Box as somebody from the outside, and, and you, as a young man, have a, a wonderful history uh, in the industry, uh, and we might, we might delve back into that as well. Um, when you came to Compass Box, somebody from the outside, what was the thing that surprised you the most when you came inside these hallowed walls? That's a really good question. I think. Thank you. I uh, I would probably have to go back in time a little bit before 2019 because when I was just coming to the end of my degree uh, in St Andrews, I talked to John about doing a little internship. So I had actually spent ah. a couple of weeks here before. Uh -huh. And so yeah, the research only went so deep, James. <laughs> so deep. So I spent two weeks here. Um, I was sort of helping a little bit with the marketing. Um, they were trying to uh, we were trying to digitize some of the press cuttings that John collected in in all sorts of, of publications, both related to whiskey and in the case of some gentlemen's lifestyle brands, uh, not <laughs> necessarily connected with whiskey, but which all had really lovely things to say about Compass Box. 
So getting those um, scanned uh, and put into the system um, was, was something that I was doing. But were these were these magazines that were held just for the articles? Yes, yes, okay. absolutely. That's, okay. Yeah. Oh. The, the cuttings were the only things okay. that, that were yes. left. I don't know where the magazine ended up, okay. um, but, but yes, the... Uh, the On a the railway line, if experience is anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did a bit of that for two weeks, um, and John was, was incredibly generous with his time, but also recommendations of who to see in London. So I visited Darren Rook at the London Distillery. I went to oh. see um, uh, the guys at the Whiskey Exchange. I did a, a bunch of bar trips as well. And um, that was probably the biggest surprise for me. It was just how embedded Compass Box is in not just making whiskey, but enjoying whiskey. Mm. So whether that's trying to, trying to create relationships with retailers, whether that's trying to create relationships with bars, or whether it's just as simple as everything we do in here only really makes sense when people are enjoying it um, at home, in bars, wherever it happens to be. So that was one of the biggest surprises for me, was, was we really think about the moment of enjoyment, that share and enjoy moment. Um, and, and being able to, to go outside the office and see that was, was fantastic. There you go. It's nice to be immersed in the culture. And so now that you are with Compass Box, what do you do? My day-to-day -day is I look after... I look after recipes, I look after prototypes, and I am getting on board with uh, casks. Because um, for us, and it's a bit like, I was listening to your conversation with Alistair Walker, the, the increasing trend for independent bottlers to re-rack, finish, manipulate mm. in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, very excited by your Catoctin Creek project. I think that's gonna be fantastic. As are we, thank you. Uh, <laughs> just getting that out there. Um, Cheers. And so we've, we've always had that, that, um, that in our DNA, whether it was starting with French Oak and then in, in the last seven years, starting to fill our own casks of new make spirits and so not even dealing oh, with mature okay. whiskey. Um, we have these relationships with cask suppliers in Spain and America and, and, uh, and John and I were gonna head over to the States in March to, to see some of our, our cooperage and cask supplier partners. And so there's a bit of that coming, but this year it is making sure all the samples you saw next door are tasted and making sure they're all okay and, and good to go. And then it really is, uh, as I'm sure John will say uh, uh, very shortly, it's a team experience. Myself, John, Jill, Elif, who heads up our operations as well. We're always tasting these prototypes, as we call them, to make sure that that compelling character is there. And, and if that means going back to the recipe, tweaking things, taking casks out, mm. it's usually taking casks out, um, and, uh, and just distilling it down to, to something uh, even more pure and even more enjoyable, then that's what the, the team comes together to do. Mm. But I, I spearhead the, the putting the recipes together preparing those recipes in prototype form and then organizing the tastings and then working on tweaks that we've all agreed. Fantastic. I think you were looking at some numbers in the last week or so. Yeah, we, we have a... up your first year. We have a team trip next uh, next week, actually, and um, we're going to be presenting some of, the, some of the numbers, crunching the data on 2019, and, uh, and yeah, spending dedicated time tasting these whiskeys. It's meant more than 1,000 samples. Uh, which has meant more than about 300 different prototypes. Good Lord. Um, and uh, that's for, well, four of our regular range products, Artist Blend, Hedonism, Spice Tree, The Story of the Spaniard, and, uh, and the rest are limited editions which have come out in the last mm. 12 months mm -hmm. or are still to come out or could become limited editions in the future. So, so you're talking earlier about completionists. What do completionists do with the limited editions? 
that you're sending to different corners of the globe, are they sourcing them? Are they able to get their hands on them through some chain of command? Do you have any thoughts about that when you're releasing limited editions into the into the world? We have two um, two gentlemen who um, look after, in the case of Phil, Europe and rest of the world. In the case of Mark, uh, USA primarily. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty sure there are some squabbling matches about who gets what. Um, <laughs> Some of our recent limited editions, you know, there's, there've been quite generous allocations, so it's not been too bad. But sometimes, yes, if it's if it's something like a, a the Muse, for example, which was came out recently, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that is, I don't know how that decision is made. That's out of my hands, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make the Muse, but for, for whiskies that are, that are coming out now, that's that's not my problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah. How many limited editions would you would you put out annually? Is there an average to work from? For a long time, we looked at between about four and five, and that would be sort of going everywhere. We would still do some retailers in the US, like California, Bounty Hunter, um, Binnie's in, in, uh, in New York. Julia's with Rivals. Exactly. Yep. So again, that, those retailer relationships are so, so important, and, and if, if you know, we can do something with them, and we're tailing back on those a little bit now, and maybe the, the limited editions that go around the world are a little bit more regular. But yeah, in the old days, three to four, maybe five. Okay. Um, last year, we, we got a little bit excited, I think. <laughs> um, 12 months, sort of autumn to autumn, it was eight or nine. Okay. Uh, I think mm -hmm. nine, um, which we're, we're, we are, I think, trying to scale back a little bit on that one. Was there a reason for that? Just you suddenly had a lot of cast that you liked and wanted to use, or partnerships that you wanted to build? or? We just got too excited. <laughs> I love that. I, I, yeah, yeah it has, it's, this has been something we've been talking about quite a lot in these in this, these four walls in the last year, amongst, with everybody in the business, not <clears throat> just James and myself. But um, yeah, we've. I'll be honest with you. We, we've not taken in the historically. We've not taken a what you might call a strategic approach to the number of limited editions, what they cost, how they're priced, and all that stuff. So we've just kind of been making stuff, and as, we've, as great ideas would bubble up, it's like, mm. okay. I, mean, I can remember, for example, the first no-name whiskey was like literally one of those wake up in the middle of the night. We had this great parcel of our malt whiskey from the Ardbeg distillery that we were desperately trying to figure out, well, how do we use it? It's amazing, and how do you do it? We, we were using it as a small minority portion of it, adding it to other things. It just wasn't ever working and showing off how great it was. And then it was like one of those things in the middle of the night where you wake up, you're like, I gotta write this down. I always keep a pad and pen next to my bed. Yeah. It's like, okay, um, Ardbeg, it's gonna be, the recipe's gonna be mostly Ardbeg, uh, malt whiskey from the Ardbeg distillery, and the label's just gonna be black. Yep. Black. No name, black. But, just yeah. black label. And we went from that idea to launching it in, I can't remember, four months or something? And it was just like, we got so excited about it. It was like, if we don't do it now and, re and release it in this period of the year, we, we, we won't be able to do it. And it was like, let's just, just do it. And mm. that's just, give you, I just tell you that story as an example of sometimes we would just get excited. You wouldn't, it wasn't a strategic business decision. Yeah. It was a, a decision made out of yeah. excitement because we were like kids. It's like, we finally cracked it. That's and then the idea was not to you know, use that, that have super heavy peated whiskey at 10 or 15 or 20% of a recipe. It was use it as like 75% of the recipe and let it sing yeah. and just back it up with a few backup singers. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just and that a, worked. And then, yeah. So it was, a, it was a passion. 
project for you. Yeah, in that way. So, and so that's a. I'm not digressing, but just to answer your question, we, yeah, we I'm haven't still always thought about it. Small parcel of Ardbeg. That, that, <laughs> I will, those words will be echoing in my dreams, perhaps nightmares tonight. But um, we were. Yeah, we can't expect to get that again. But um, yeah, but now we we do need to to think about it, and we are thinking about it a little with a little more with a little more structured approach, because otherwise the risk is we just keep spinning the stuff out and it might be really fun but it'd be like your favorite band like spinning out you know 10 new songs every single month at a certain point you're like oh, i just can't i can't take yeah. listen to this much music from them yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. as much as i love them you know yeah. i can't absorb it all and get get to know it mm-hmm. before something else comes out so we just need to balance things. we've talked a little bit about the brookladdy factor when mm. there was there was a period when brookladdy mm. just had so many new releases it was really hard to dip into what the distillery actually did. Yeah. Um, and so I would imagine for you as, as Compass Box, it's nice to be known for your jumping off points. Yeah. But I've got both Glasgow Blend and King Street Blend on my shelf at home. Yeah. And I know I can rely on those. I know if I need to make you know, high quality cocktails for friends, I've got them right there. The price point is phenomenal uh, in stores. So it's good to be known, but it's also nice to have those excitable moments. Yeah, I remember those days when Brooklady was spinning out just all this crazy stuff. And <laughs> I mean, you know, not, it was, it seemed crazy at the time. And I'm, you know, because we shared a lot of distributors. And, and uh, you're right, it was a what is the distillery really all about? And I think they've come to grips with that in recent years. But for us, our distillery is not one place. Our distillery is a country called Scotland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it makes it even more challenging for, for us, who, because we are a creative business at the end of the day, to kind of rein in our instincts sometimes. Mm. I wanted to get back to the blending bit and see if there's a logistics factor in here. So what, a conversation I find myself having all the time is uh, independent bottler enthusiasts will say, "If you had, did you get that Klein Leash from 97 from Adelphi and the other 97 from Gordon McPhail? Boy, Klein Leash were doing amazing things mm-hmm. in 97. No, what's happening is there was just a massive parcel that was made available to everybody and it just so happened that everybody was re- releasing 97 stuff. So, you know, here you are 20 years ago looking to create Compass Box as a blender. So question, question I have is twofold. As a blender, do you, did you find yourself not a slave to, but having to deal with the logistics of that um, situation where what's available to me here and now? And then B, being a blender and not having a distillery house style, you have to create a style for yourself. So, so there's, there's something, there's a little line that goes from bottling to bottling to bottling. How did, how did you find yourself from a logistical standpoint sourcing whiskey and did that inform your DNA for your whiskeys? Well, 20 years is a long time in, in some ways. And so 20 years ago when I started the business, you know, I went to the various companies in the industry, particularly the one I used to work for, and said, look, I want to do this, and this is why, and I think this is why I think it's good for the industry, and 
people like my former employer were willing to supply me because, yeah. as I said earlier in the conversation, there was a lot of excess inventory aging away in warehouses sure. in Scotland back then because they laid it down 10 or 20 years prior, previously, anticipating the category to keep growing like it was in the 70s and 80s, and it just didn't happen. Mm. So, so they were willing to, to work with small companies, tiny companies, even like mine back then. And, you know, having come from a big Scotch whiskey company and one of my roles was, was new product development, I had an understanding of how the company managed stock, at least at a certain level. And, um, and so when I went in, I said, well, I got early on in the early days, I, I, we, got a, we drew up a supply contract. It's like, okay, these are the products I, I want to make, and these are the recipes, and let's think forward. And, you know, we had like a rolling five-year plan for how much we thought we would sell, okay. and every year we would update it, and every year we'd, I'd go back to them and sit down, and we'd say, okay, well, here's what the sales forecast looks like now for these products, and these are the recipes, the distilleries, and the ages, and the wood types. Will you have a, you know, is there enough? Mm. And if there's not, we would, you know, we, for, hopefully we'd see it four or five years out. Yeah. And we could make decisions on how to manage that, sure. um, whatever that might be. So that's how I, and so, but you know, today the industry is so much different. Now we're in a different era of, of growth yeah. and whiskey and Scotch whiskey and, and the companies have all evolved. The big ones have become bigger and more sophisticated and, and less uh, interested because they don't need to in supplying, you know, little tiny companies like, so we're, we, if I, you probably could not start a compass box today and get the same access that we have. I think that's, I'm quite confident in saying that, sadly, but that's the case. So that was it, getting yeah. supply contracts in place in the early days when people had too much whiskey. <laughs> well, I imagine back then, too, you know, James, you talked earlier about the episode with Ali Walker and how he's receiving stock and he's re-racking it here and there. Back then, was re-racking so much a thing, or was there enough good stock in good wood yeah. for you to not have to worry about re-racking? Well, I was, I've, and we are still to this day very picky and very focused, fanatical even about casks, as James was mentioning before, talking about all the suppliers that we have. And in the beginning days of Compass Box, what I wanted to build the house style on was a richness and a softness and a sweetness on the palate that was derived in a large part, large part from uh, first fill barrels, what we call you know, whiskey's aging first fill barrels. That was part of most of our recipes. Mm. In some cases, like a silen, it was the 100% of, of all, the, all the grain whiskeys and the malt whiskeys were all aged in first fill barrels. And that was really important. And so I would basically, in a sense, I hesitate to say this, but it was almost like I would go in and skim the cream off the top as far as I was concerned. It's like, mm. you've got tons of whiskeys aged in refill hogsheads. Yeah. And a lot of it's boring because they've been reused too many times, if you mm. ask me. But if you can get in there and just, just look primarily at first fill barrels, you're getting some interesting stuff. And so that's kind of what was my approach. That was, okay. you know, the backbone of our house style in those days was whiskeys aged in first fill. So it wasn't necessarily distillery driven, but it was whatever you were getting, it had to be first fill. I'd say it was more, it was flavor, style driven. Okay. As opposed to distill, as opposed to wood driven. And I wasn't, I wasn't interested in, you know, famous distilleries. I was interested in character. Yeah. And so, for example, we've been a long time lover of, malt whiskey from the Kleinleash distillery because mm -hmm. I knew from my days it made this really special stuff. 20 years ago it was 
it was pretty much unknown. <laughs> you know, to, yeah. I mean, you know, they, they had their flora and fauna bottling, but no, not many people knew just how special it was. And I didn't care if people didn't know Klein Leash or how to pronounce it or whatever, where yeah. it was. I just knew it was really great character and, 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 and helped become a backbone for a lot of our recipes. And so, yeah, it wasn't. So it's really about the distillery character and, 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 and the compelling character of that of the distillery spirit and then the wood. And then the name is really irrelevant. Yeah. Well, what you're saying now, and specifically tied to Klein Leash, reminds me of what James was saying earlier. You're going through your hundreds of millions of samples. <laughs> in, in, in a, literally. Literally, literally millions. Hundreds of millions. <laughs> and, and you I, would... I, I don't have a palate left. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you said it in, in, in previous employment, when going through cast samples, it was, it was more a nosing. And now at Compass Box, you find it's it's the entire experience. It's it's texture as well, which we all know Klein Leash has that texture, that waxiness that comes through. If if you were if you were to rank importance in in whiskey, you know where, where would you put? Are you looking for an overall experience? Do you want to make sure that there's boy that mouthfeel has to be there, or I could do with a little less mouthfeel because the flavor is good, like. How do, you, how do you rate your blends as you're creating them and obviously tweaking them over and over and over again to get it to where you want to be? What, what are those little talking points? For, for me, and having been a fan of Compass Box uh, for a, a long time before I was fortunate enough to work here, that sweetness and richness on the palate was, for me, a signature of, of Compass Box. And obviously, mm-hmm. we don't chill filter. We don't add colouring. And I think all of those, those two factors do help to contribute to this this presence in the mouth, mm. and it's not necessarily waxiness because we don't always use uh, Kleinlish, sure. uh, although when, when it's available, we love to do that. Um, but there is this this compass box mouthfeel for me. So when we're whether it's Glasgow blend, for example, which obviously has a bit of sherry and a bit of peat, mm. it's thick, and there's that that pepperiness, um, but it's still soft at the same time. It's mm. that balance of, I can tell I've got a lot of flavor here, but it's not overwhelming my palate. It's not overloading me. Um, and then you think about something like a Sila, which is kind of one of the lightest whiskies I think you can find, but there is still that, that, that poise on the palate. And I think yeah. that, is, that is a compass box, something that we, we strive for. It is hard to put into words what we look for in, in many cases. And there's not one, you know, kind of idea that every whiskey you know, represents or we'd like it. So it depends. But um, we do use this word compelling. Um, so we just don't, we don't just talk about is it good or is it high quality or whatever. We use this word compelling, which I know isn't really helping to define it necessarily any better than what James just said. But... Um, it's, it's when, you, when you, you you develop a shared language in the industry around mm-hmm. describing whiskey, sure. and I think within companies you develop a shared language within that language, that industry language. Mm. And we use this word compelling in here. And if I say to James, he says, "Oh, I just tasted, you know, a dozen of these examples we just got in." I said, "Was anything compelling?" He knows what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, they all could be great. They all yeah. could be good. They all could be sound, quote unquote, high quality. But were they? Was any of them? Were any of them compelling? Yeah, yeah. And that's when he. And then, then, then we, then we start getting interested in stuff. Yeah, I. 
Jason and I have this conversation every now and again where I'll taste a whiskey and I'll say, this reminds me of why I drink whiskey. Yeah. Right? When you had those little special moments. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's compelling. Yeah. yeah. Saturday night, I, I, I went into my, where I keep all my, not my bottles for everyday weekly consumption, where I keep you know, the bar, where I keep everything else. And I pulled out a bottle of 2012 Flaming Heart. Mm. And every Flaming Heart whiskey has been based on the same stylistic idea of combining peat smokiness and, and whiskeys aged in sherry and with, with a bit of malt whiskey from the Klein Leach distillery in there as well. And but 2012, you know, it, it, I don't know, it's like all the stars aligned on that one. And I'd kind of forgotten it because it's been, it has to be several years since I've had, I just brought in the kitchen and had a glass. And it was one of those moments that like you just described, yeah. Joshua, where I was like, this is why I started this business. <laughs> this is why I love whiskey. This is everything kind of comes yeah. together. Yeah. It's balance. And what is balance? Balance can mean so many different things to different people, but it's just all there. There's that. Ticked all the boxes. And, and, and then there's that yeah. extra special sort of magical thing. It's kind of hard to describe, you know, in terms of why it's calling you back to the glass. That's why we drink whiskeys for yeah. these moments, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. So as the company builds... Are you still getting to be as hands-on as you used to be, as you want to be? You're not being drawn towards, as you just mentioned a moment ago, the more strategic side, the, the strategic build. Strategery? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you still get to, to play in the toy box, as it were? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I can... I can if I want to. <laughs> but do you um, get to? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, but I do have lots of different responsibilities in the business. And as the business grows, fortunately, I mean, there was, if you think of the very early years, I kind of, I did everything, right? I was alone in the beginning and then there was two or three of us. And, and I did everything. But in the early years, most of my time was spent with whiskey, mm -hmm. you know, yep. getting it, assessing samples, putting together, getting up to Scotland. And then more and more people got joined the business as it grew, and then I got, and, and more and more people started getting involved with whiskey-making function, the team. And so I got away from the day-to-day -day and got involved in other things until a point maybe seven or eight years ago where I was just involved in way too much and not spending nearly enough time in whiskey. But thankfully, you know, I had good people. You know, Greg Glass at the time, Elif has been our head of operations for 10 years. And now we're at a point where this part of the evolution I'm, there are more people in the business, so I'm able to shed the things that I'm not good at, like responsibility for you know, being more involved in operations and finance and all that kind of stuff and the sales part. I don't have to be involved in it anymore, which does free me up to think about whiskey more. But now we've got James and Jill, Elif, and so we've got a team. I'm not doing the day-to-day. -day. That's, that's James's role and, and Jill's role in terms of bringing the whiskeys to the world. But I'm not, I'm not thinking about whiskey making any less, and I'm not drinking any less, that's for sure. Um, it's just an evolution, um, and I'm, I'm okay with it for now. Um, I'm feeling, I think there is a point maybe a couple of years from now when I'll even have less of the other responsibilities and can be more focused on whiskey. But I would see myself at that point, and I think, James, maybe you can speak to this too, we can see where we're going, is there's so much more I want to do, and I want the business to do, I want us to do in whiskey, mm. in terms of 
experimentation, you know, what people would call R&D, research and development. Um, there's just so much more that I want to do that I just haven't been able to get the company to do because we just can't do everything. Yeah. And as it grows, one of the benefits of growth is more people and the ability to do more. And I'm looking forward to that. Nice. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> James, do you want to do you want to add on to that as somebody who has a, a vision going forward as well? Uh, I, I don't really have a, a lot to add to that, but yes, it's. I live in Glasgow and I work here, so I get a lot of time on a train to uh, to look out the window and think about stuff. And uh, yeah, John's right. It's there. There is so much that is still to be done, and while not every research and development project will create something compelling. It might be new, it might be unusual, it might be a first for whiskey, but it might not taste very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we have to bear yeah. that in mind. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there, there might be some, some tiny little process tweak that is commonplace in wine or Calvados or rum or somewhere else that we, no one's really spotted yet and we just need to apply to, to whiskey and see if that works. And I think as I get a bit more time in the business, and I've been so lucky to be introduced to so many people on the, the operation side of things within whiskey, but also other really influential people outside of whiskey. And being able to pick their brains is, is fascinating. And, and we, we, we do try to be as creative as possible and draw in as many influences as possible, because I, I just think that makes, it does make, to John's point, Scotch whiskey more interesting, but it also makes our day-to-day -day jobs more interesting as well. Nice. Makes good sense. Yeah. What you were saying before, John, reminded me of a conversation that Jason and I had with David Perkins from High West, maybe 2013-ish. Jason and I used to run a festival called Whiskey Jubilee, and we would have a festival bottling every year. And our second festival bottling, we did a collaboration with High West. David gave, gave us the components. We blended them together, and it was, it was that was our first time dipping a toe into blending. And our first time meeting light whiskey. And first time and so meeting having light American whiskey. having American green and having yeah, some basically. new category that nobody knew about. It was wonderful. Yeah. And what we had found out at the time was similar to what you're saying, where you're, you're handing the baton a bit to, to James and, and to other people. He was perfectly comfortable with that. And from the outsider perspective, it's a bit jarring. Right, because you've been the face for a while. David Perkins was the face, and yeah. do you do you think about that at all? Does that does that even matter to you? I think what matters. I think I'm answering, I'm responding to your question is what Compass Box is all about, and that mm -hmm. that carries on. So you know, we have a belief system, um, a way of approaching what we do. Um, a way of thinking about whiskey creation and a way of thinking about the enjoyment of whiskey. And, and it doesn't have to be me yeah. out there yep. explaining all that to people. Um, it, and it's not increasingly. It's a team of people. It's all mm -hmm. of us and mm -hmm. James. And um, that's really what's the most important. Because I never set this business up to be the John Glazer show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. This was not a, you know that kind of thing. Um, I never, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, would you, in 20 years, would you, you, know, would you have this role in the business and, and, and presence in the industry? I would say, no, that's not what I'm, I'm here for. I, yeah. I actually stumbled across Amy, showed me something 
just last over the weekend about something I wrote in 1999 when I was putting some thoughts together for this business. And one of and there was a to do list, and one of the things was, you know, find a technical consultant stroke blender. Yeah. Okay. Um, because even though I'd been blending at home for several years at that point and had the, the luxury of being able to bring home samples from the big distilling company I worked for, you know, I still wasn't sure. I didn't ever see myself in the early days as being that person. I'm going to have to find that person. Mm. And uh, I didn't find the person. And just when I realized, you know, I had the, uh, an ability to figure out what tastes good. And I think that's really what's most important. And mm-hmm. I kind of just kind of went from there. But it was never set up to be. It's not so. To answer your question, yeah. no, it's not just about me. Okay, yeah, it's not just about me. Yeah, and that's really I, that's a thing. I think that you know some people think, oh, you know, they think of businesses like ours. And they just they. Some people have asked me, you know, I just you have the greatest job. You drive around Scotland to all these distilleries and you just drink whiskey, <laughs> all, taste whiskey all day, and, and and it's just well, you guys see. I mean, this is a business. Yeah. yeah, and you know, the only way I could ever have made that my career is if I'd somehow had bajillions of, of pounds to invest in the business, to hire everybody else to manage the business while I just went and drove around distilleries yeah. all day. So it's a business at the end of the day. And, uh, and, and a business and, you know, great things, I think, like we could, we've arguably done, are not done by one person. It's a team yeah. of people. It's a team of people. Does yeah. that get what you're Yeah, no, that's, 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 <laughs> that's perfect. And, and the fact that you're able to find good people like James that you can trust to say you're you're making stuff to go into our bottles I think that's great that you you've cultivated a team to allow you to do that that's what a great business is yeah yeah great group of people we only have John till two and so cool. we might want to ah. blitz through some well my, listener my laptop says it's 8 45 a.m. so yeah right we, we've got a time <laughs> Uh, first question comes from Jose Milk, and he says, uh, when you start off to create a new blend, product or blend, do you generally have an idea in mind of a finished product, or do you let the whiskey guide you based on the different flavor profiles? And, and I'm reading this wall right here, the quote from Pablo <laughs> exactly Picasso. Exactly what you're looking at over my shoulder. Um, so I wonder how much this, this quote that says, I begin with an idea, then it becomes something else how guiding that is i think that's the answer to to pablo's question it's up on the wall right there (laughs) response anyway yeah sometimes we do have start with an idea Mm. it's never it's usually it's hard to be super specific but with an idea in terms of what we do but start with an idea and try to get there but very often as picasso alluded to uh, in that quotation it's yeah you, you, you become something else. If you could use, if James took you through, and he can do this if you want, all the spreadsheets that with, with all the recipe iteration, prototype iterations mm-hmm. for the Affinity Project, you could, it's almost a, a narrative in there because for every, every time James or Jill does a, a different recipe prototype for, the, you know, for, the, for a project, we create a new spreadsheet or a new worksheet within a spreadsheet yeah. with that new recipe. And we capture them and we number, give them all names or numbers or whatever, code, so we can track them. And you, if you look through them all, it's, it's a story there. Yeah. And with Affinity, we went down this path and over months, and you can see it in the worksheets. And then mm-hmm. we had to put it in reverse, come back, <laughs> <laughs> and then go down another path to finish it. And 
uh, it didn't end up being exactly what we... Th- actually, with Affinity, it ended up being closer to what I originally thought. This is actually oh, okay. to, the, to the question. Yeah. We went off this path where it wasn't... It, we, it strayed from the original thing. So we brought it back, and it kind of ended up being closer to what I had originally envisioned. But not exact, right? But very often, um, think of a good example. You do start off with something, and yeah, and it, and it just ends up being something completely different. Um, but it's you're so happy with it; it's so yeah. compelling. You're just like, okay, <laughs> yeah, this is this is great. Yeah. I just wanted to bounce off that for a second. We've we've had some blending experience, very very limited, with as you were mentioned the the Perkins project for the Jubilee, and we did a Master of Malt blending project for the Bloggers Blend, um, and so I, and we've got samples from both of those experiences that I've played around with. One of the things that always boggled my mind is we'd be working through a blend, working through a blend. Okay, if I add just a little more bourbon, I'll get the extra bit of caramel that I'm really looking for, and that'll just bing. Or for the Master of Malt, if we just add a little bit more of the Isla whiskey, it'll give me that little bit of smoke, and bing, it'll just be there. And in neither occasion did that happen. Mm. You add the thing that you think will deliver the thing you're looking for, and it just goes, nope. Yeah. It just bounces off it. Yeah, it's not additive like that. It's in, in, in most cases we've we find, yeah, one plus one doesn't always equal two. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, it's it's and that's one of I think one of the fun things about blending is mm. just you, you get this idea in mind. You think oh, all I need to do is that, mm-hmm. and you, it just doesn't work. And you just keep trying and, and trying to figure it out. And sometimes you you, you might crack it, and sometimes yeah. you end up down a different path, and you're 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 just as happy or happier. Can it be a different type of solution every time? It's not just oh, if I take away a little bit of that, and add in a bit of that with an additional bit of this, then it works. It, it, does it just is it more nebulous than that? Every time is a new solution. Is that what you run into? What do you think, James? I, I think, Jason, to your point about uh, every time it's a different solution, I think that's true. <laughs> um, and that's why sometimes these projects can spool to many, many sh- worksheets. But sometimes it is just a case of bedding yourself down in what do we think is working mm. and then change one thing. And, uh, and has that got us closer or further away? Yeah. And then you just keep going forwards and back, forwards and back. Yeah, because if you start changing too many variables at the same time, you don't, and you get to something, you're not, not sure why you got there. Yeah. If, you change, if you change two things, you can't tell which change was you know, the driver of what you've got. How much, when making change, how much is time a factor? Like a, a marrying period? Or, or does that play a factor? We do like to give our whiskies um, six weeks in the vatting tank mm. um, before bottling which just gives everything a, a chance to, to harmonize, really. Um, but in the blending portion of that, is, is time a consideration? Do you have the luxury of six weeks waiting on a sample? No, we will typically create a blend, uh, one say today, and uh, I will add the water, and then I will let it sit until tomorrow, which is when we will have the scheduled okay. tasting. So okay. but we, yeah, but we know that when we're tasting something that James just put together yesterday, we're yeah. not seeing its ultimate form yeah we yeah. as i say to people it's like you have to kind of look at it with your eyes squinted a little bit okay. um just get a sense of what you think it can be and yeah. it'll if it's working then it's probably after it's actually blended at scale and married for a month or two months yeah. or three months yeah, yeah. you're going to find it knits together and becomes a whole and is actually much more together and enjoyable okay. better good yeah okay 
Michael Bloom had asked a question about mouthfeel and texture, which we've already touched on. Jim Manley asked about Scotch whiskey regulations, which we've touched on. <laughs> so Philippe Fanavong. Philippe Fanavong, Philippe Fanavong. He's a longtime listener, and I got his name stuck in my head. Instead of Felice Navidad, it was <laughs> Philippe Fanavong. And now we've got people writing into us saying, what the fuck? I can't get this, this random guy's name out of my head. Um, and I'm singing his song all the time. So he, he's, so Philippe Vanavong says, I'd like to know uh, more about marrying times, which we touched on a yep. bit here, uh, and the difference between whiskeys that are married before aging. So, you know, there's parcels of, you know, in-cask blends, and then ones that are uh, blended after aging. And then uh, secondarily, he, he's curious, you know, do you have any advice for consumers wanting to experiment with home blends or infinity bottles? Well, I'll take the, the latter part. I, yes, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I think that. And that's exactly how I started, you know, back when I was still living in New York City and in my little apartment in Manhattan, I, I just I collected. At that time, I was just buying mostly single wall bottlings. And just blending them. Or sometimes I would buy blends and blend blends with blends and make meta blends. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just that, that it's, for some people that's fun. And also for me, it helped to build up a sensibility for things, mm. you know, in those early days. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, and I used, to, I used to make like these little blends and I would put them in little bottles and make my own labels and give them to folks around the holidays and my friends and family. It's like that. It's like a personal little gift. That's it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Michael Bloom yeah. does that. Yeah. Yes, that he does. We have received some from Michael. So yeah. Kudos yeah. to Michael. So And well, the, the first part about uh, the differences between marrying in cask and I guess marrying in vat. Well, you, maybe you can build on this, James, but when we talk about this, this is a whole area where I'd love to understand the science and that's one of those projects that we're going to do in the future okay. when I have more time. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all have more time in the future. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, it is something we talk about. And our good friend Deval Gandhi up at the Lakes Distillery is, 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 is probably a better person to ask this question of because he's, he's looked into this more than we have been able to and can speak to the science to some extent. But there is, has to be, there is science to it that we just don't understand. I don't think a lot of people in the industry really, really do as far as people we know. My feeling is that the longer stuff can can stay to, mingle together, mm. the better integration you're going to get. And um, some people talk about, you know, different components finding a new equilibrium after they've been blended. Sure. Now I can't explain exactly what that means, but mm-hmm. Harry, but Dr. Harry Rifkin up in Scotland talks about this, and if he's talking <laughs> about it, it, must be true. Yeah. But I, that's why we do like to marry because we just think we get better flavor, better integration of all the components. Okay. And that's yeah. the general way we think. Is there anything to add to that, James? From my perspective, we talked about affinity before. That does contain whiskey that was blended, um, not from birth. It was blended, I think, when it was an 18-year-old. And then it spent quite a long time in um, refill sherry butts. And so that comes out feeling very old. But is that down to its overall age? Is that because it was blended and then aged together as a, as a component whiskey? Mm. I don't have en- enough data on that to, to really speak to the differences um the only thing for us is it's much better ultimately i said that we're um maturing our own malt spirit if we create a blend as malt spirit 
then there's less that we can do with that than keeping those five, for, for argument's sake, those five different spirits separate. Yeah. And by the time they're mature, then we can do something with five different things as yeah. opposed to having a lot of one thing. Yeah. So for us, we like to have that flexibility, those different strings uh, to the bow, as it were, in the warehouse. Um, but yeah, I would love to, to do a bit more uh, looking into blending from birth and then aging. I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah, we will. First off, I love, I love hearing that blending from infancy that sounds, <laughs> that sounds very cool um jim cook had a had a very interesting question with a very interesting follow-up question and it says the first one is what question do you wish people would stop asking and what question do you wish people would start asking we've covered four of the former and none of the latter so <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I don't want people to stop asking questions. <laughs> One of the things some people ask frequently that I've never felt I have a good answer for is why did you name the company Compass Box? Yeah. Now I'm gonna answer the question <laughs> and I'm gonna just tell you, you know, spoiler alert, it's not a very exciting answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because I liked it. Yeah. And it was, it was inspired by a constellation, which is ordinarily known as Pixis. I saw a translation of it into English as, as it described it as, as the compass, Compass Box. Hmm. Um, it's part of a, a series of constellations that comprise a ship, and I just liked it. I liked the idea of these boxes that ships used to have hold the compass. You know, they would have been made by hand in wooden yeah. boxes. I just liked it. Yeah. Now, it also happens, so happens that one of the most important tools of a, of a cooper is the compass to, to fashion the head of a, of a, of a cask. Oh, okay. Um, so there's, that's the compass that you'll see in our logo mm -hmm. um, rather than the constellation itself so there's really not a really exciting you know thought through marketing answer to that question like this is a really <laughs> rambling answer that i always feel like this when i give so maybe that's the one question <laughs> i'd like to avoid but you don't have to stop asking it <laughs> uh, and what are you not being asked that you you wish you were um james do you have anything on that <laughs> I don't really. I, I had a bit of time uh, over the autumn period to spend time on the stand at some whiskey festivals in London and Paris. Mm. And um, no, I think I think people coming up who are curious, they touch on a lot. I think because we share so much information and we're happy to yeah. talk about a great yeah. deal. No, I think people feel inspired to, to ask pretty much what, whatever they feel like. I don't have any question that I wish people would ask more. Can we leave you with this question? I know you've got to go. What about Compass Box, or perhaps the industry writ large, has you most excited as you look forward to your, your business growing and expanding? When I started the business, one of my reasons for starting the business, you know, as I explained to my father at the time, for example, you know, why are you starting a Scotch whiskey business? Why don't you start a vodka brand? <laughs> Everybody drinks vodka. <laughs> but I, I, I just, I saw... A, a world, if you will, where people were going to come to Scotch whiskey and whiskey in general just because it's a, a flavorful, fascinating drink. And I just thought it was about it was going to have a moment, even though it wasn't ha it wasn't mm -hmm. you know part of the zeitgeist back then. Yeah, um, with the exception of you know a small portion of people who were geeking out about it, or you know the classic gentlemen's club kind of thinking. But um, I just kind of I, I, I thought there was a chance that it was going to have its have a, have a, and now twenty years later, yeah. I mean, you were saying something about earlier, Jason, about your head swirling because whiskey's become such 
so popular over yep. the last several years, especially American whiskey in America, yep. that um, when I look back, it's actually really reassuring. And, and, and I think that Scotch whiskey is yet to, I think there's still, it's still going to, it's day, if you will, it's renaissance is still, mm. you know, about to come. I think a lot of people who are into things like American whiskey and people even who come into whiskey through Japanese whiskey today or Irish whiskey, I think ultimately you're going to land in your drinking journey in your life. Most of them anyway are going to end up in scotch. Yeah. Because there's just so much to explore there and yes. discover and so much breadth of style and so many increasingly producers that it's just, it can become like a, a real life's avocation. Yeah, it's... it's I've, really think you hit the nail on the head here you know living in the u.s where where bourbon is is king i find so many people who were bourbon or bust found that they've they've reached a flavor limit i've had all of that it all tastes not at all tastes the same but there's no new flavors to be had you can change up the mash bill all you like but you're still tied to that new charred oak cask and I'm finding them dipping that toe into Scotch whiskey and saying, okay, maybe I do like smoke now, or maybe I do like that kind of sherry funk going on. And it's, and they find, like you had said, they, they find that end point, maybe not an end point, but they find that new point in Scotch whiskey. Mm-hmm. And that is an exciting thing. I think so. Yeah. Well, long may your success continue. Thank you. Thank you for carving out time for us two jamokes today. A real pleasure. Likewise. Cheers, Cheers Josh. Thank, Thank you very much. It's been Thank fun. That really was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. I had told you previously about how impressed I've always been by John Glazer, mm-hmm. how articulate he is, how yes. thoughtful he is. Yeah. And I think that really was borne out in that interview where we were just throwing questions at him that we'd always been curious about. Mm. And he very patiently responded to us. At the same time, we've always said wonderful things about James Saxon. And he didn't expect to be part of that interview. (laughs) I don't think he did. (laughs) But John enjoyed giving him the floor. And and James always had something thoughtful, ready to say. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, sincere thanks to James for being the go-between in helping us set up that meeting at the mm. Compass Box mm-hmm. offices and tasting rooms. That was yeah, it was just such a treat. Yeah. Really was easy, you know, especially coming off a plane when you know all you really want to do is crawl into a bed and pretend the world isn't happening around you. But instead, it was a, a, a thoughtful, thoroughly enjoyable conversation yeah. um, in a really cool setting with a couple of really cool guys. So I, I, I was very happy. Was there any part of the conversation that surprised you? I would have to remember the raw audio to be able to answer that question. Well, seeing as I just edited it all, <laughs> edited it, it all, um... You know, I'll tell you, leaving the conversation live, there was a part of the conversation that kind of surprised me. And going back into 
the recording to edit it, I was still surprised by the, I shouldn't say surprised by the answer, but let me explain it to you this way. When people think about Compass Box, quite often the name John Clazer comes front of mind, right? Who makes Compass Box whiskey? Well, it's John. John Glazer's doing it. He's been doing it for 20 years. And you look at Whiskey Advocate, Whiskey Magazine, you know, you name the publication, blogs, you no one can seem to mention Compass Box without putting John Glazer in there. Yeah, very much so. And he had said, I never set out for this to be the John Glazer show. Yeah, that is that was an interesting takeaway. Right. And so so if if he never set out and, and I take him at his word, I, I don't I don't refute what he says at all, but I find it so very interesting that try as he may to not make it the John Glazer show, those reporting on Compass Box are making him very much the focal point or a focal point of the Compass Box conversation. So it's going to be really interesting to see if and how they try to, you know, get around that, get in front of it, if it even matters to him. He may, he may not even care. He may just care, you know what, the company's growing. We're putting out good whiskey. I'm getting great people under me to 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 carry on the torch and to come up with new ideas. And maybe he doesn't care. I, I don't know, but I just I did find it surprising. But I certainly think there's an an inevitability to that type of coverage where if you're a journalist, you're always looking for the human element in a story. Very good point. And so even if you're a whiskey journalist and you're reporting on a distillery, it's still common to talk about the person who founded that distillery or the distillery manager or the old distillery manager who was really famous for doing something some way. Um, I was even trying to think about some of the, the Diageo distilleries and thinking, well, there's Diageo in ownership of them. Mm. But I couldn't help think about Lagavulin. And Lagavulin, in recent history here, it's been Georgie Crawford, right? Yeah. And so, so even when you take a Diageo-held distillery, there's still an attempt to dress that up with people, with the human element. Look at you and I for years talking about single cast nation, the hopes, the dreams, the aspirations. It was always and continues to be Jason and Joshua's single cast nation. You know, Mm -hmm. the decisions, the choices made, you know, even you and I having this podcast, we talk about single cast nation. Single cast nation can't talk for itself. And so we continue to be the two names, the two people behind single cast nation it's hard to get away from that um no matter how hard you try to communicate a narrative mm. that leans on the whiskey in question and so you know, yeah. the other one for me is high west H- high west was david, david perkins. perkins yeah yeah when when your constellation and you lay down 160 million dollars in an acquisition you very quickly need people to be thinking something other than David Perkins. You really do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, High West might be one of those examples where they haven't replaced David Perkins with another person, 
they have really, I think, and, and you might disagree with me here, but I, I think they've really put a focus back on the brand, the bottles, the labels, the types of stories, the types of blending that they do to make High West High West. And my guess is their marketing department is working overtime to get High West to be something free from a human attachment. Well, yeah. First off, before I talk to the High West part of it, let me let me just say this. I don't want my comment about those reporting on Compass Box to having John Glazer be a focal point. I don't want that to come off as me saying there are lazy journalists. That, oh, that's no. that's no, not. No, 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 no. But I just want to be clear. I'm not trying to. There, it, it is not lazy journalism. I think you bring up a very good point in that th- there needs to be a human element, or else, you know, it's either going to read like it's going to read like a textbook, and not everybody exactly. can read textbooks. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, maybe listeners heard it in a different way. I, I certainly didn't hear you presenting that as lazy journalism. Yeah, I, I just wanted to be clear in case people yeah. did interpret it that way. I, I only heard it as the necessity of the profession. Yeah. But to your point about High West, mm-hmm. you know, David Perkins made, made it very clear that, that he had Brendan under him right. and helping to blend. And, and when, when Constellation bought High West, you know, Brendan was put front and center to be now the blender. And and I've been drinking High West since I discovered them in 2008-ish. Up until now, I bought a bottle, I want to say six months ago. And the the whiskey is, is just as good now as it was back then. So I think yeah. it's very, it was very smart of... David Perkins to put good people in place That's to help, agreed. right? And just as it is with John Glazer to put good people in place and making sure, you know, I think John had a, a very interesting point during the conversation. He talked about language that you use within a business. And part of that language is, is the whiskey compelling? What makes for a compelling whiskey? And if he's teaching people a particular way to interpret whiskeys the way that he interpreted whiskeys, well, then he's ensuring that people are carrying on what he started in the way in which he wants it carried on. Yeah, I, I think we've put a rather tidy bow on that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jason, I believe... The children are our future. Lead them well and let them, them lead, the, lead way. the way. Teach them well. And Teach let them, them well. lead the way. Teach Show them, them well. all the beauty they possess inside. Absolutely. And I know for a fact that we have done this bit on a previous episode. <laughs> but have we done, and I don't think we've done the next one, just because he's a pedo. Um, and neither of us eat it. You know, the whole, I believe I could fly. I believe I could touch the sky. Probably best if we don't attach a name to the person we're calling Pedo. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll I'll, ble- I'll bleep out. In fact, I won't say again. This is the last time you hear me use the word. 
All we're trying to do is tell the news. I know. We have some news. Let's 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 bring in the paper boy. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that Playboy is again. We have a few things to share, Jason. We do. We do. It has been a long, cold winter without any single Cast Nation whiskey, but just as the buds adorn the trees in the spring, so too does single Cask Nation shoot forth new growth this season. Wow, where did that come from? Just, just the season compelled me. The power of the season compels you? It is, that's exactly okay. it. Yeah. So talk to us about what, what's this big news that we have. I'm, I'm sure curious. Well, we, we have whiskey on a truck heading to our warehouse, and we have whiskey on a boat heading to our port. Well, let's, let's focus on the first one. So the first the one, truck whiskey, as the, we affectionately the, call it. So it's internal name, the truck whiskey. Truck whiskey. And not yeah. to be confused with whiskey you drink in a truck, because no one does that. Oh. It's uh, whiskey that you put inside a truck and drive to our warehouse. So the day that this goes live, which is what, February 26? The day after... This podcast goes live. Exactly. <laughs> exactly one day after this episode goes live. Uh huh. We anticipate a bit over, I think it's close to 850 Pappy Nonsense bottles entering our warehouse, getting ready to be sold and then shipped. Jason, can you explain to people what's inside Pappy Nonsense? I can't. You can't? Oh, that's right. You weren't there. <laughs> I mean, you know what's in there. <laughs> oh, oh, you weren't there. Oh, <laughs> oh, dear underling within the company, you weren't there. It was me and the group. Well, you already covered the group. Came to the HQ and you sampled some Tennessee whiskey casks, and votes were had. Yeah, so I'm going to redo it because there are people that are yeah, listening just for signing the first now, time. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's it. They're listening to season four, episode one. So as the two guys who who put together Single Cast Nation, bottling a single cask at a time, you and I bought a parcel of Tennessee whiskey bourbon casks that seemed to be a bit off profile from what people know of as Tennessee whiskey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of Tennessee whiskey, for those that are familiar with it, we can't mention the distillery name, but it's it's a big one. It's not Jack Daniels, but it's a, it's another big one. They're known for having this kind of peanutty forward flavor, and some even say this this like multivitamin flavor, which I've never gotten. I've never gotten either, but I've been I've been seeing a lot of that online around this distillery. Yeah, and I think I think part of it is kind of like. You know, there's, and I think you fall into this camp. There's a certain percentage of people who can't eat cilantro because it tastes soapy to them. It is. Right? Meanwhile, you know, the other 90% of people think you all are nuts. As a quick aside, I can't remember why I don't eat cilantro. My wife doesn't like cilantro. And we've said for so long Mm. that we both don't like cilantro that I really forget whether I do or do not like it and what my reason is. Wow. For not liking it if I do. 
So you've been saying it this long and you've gotten to a point where it maybe it's true. I've been saying it so long. Yeah, I've lost myself in this marriage, Joshua. I don't even know who I am anymore. Jason, Jason, come back to us. Do I like whiskey? Maybe I've lost myself in this business relationship. Maybe I don't like whiskey, but you and I have just said for so long that we like whiskey that I've just I've just assumed that to be true. Gosh, when I first met you, all you would you you'd spell whiskey with an E all the time. <laughs> you'd talk about how smooth whiskey was and what the proof was. And uh, oh, yeah. there's a reason that you hate all of those words is because I've said them since the beginning of our professional relationship. So, so anyway, so some people get this multivitamin yeah, they get this kind note. of multi, yeah. And and what we liked about these casks was that all of them, for whatever reason, seemed to be off profile for this distillery. It was more, yeah. it was more a focus on fruit. And the nuttiness definitely taking more of a backseat where usually it's like, hey, guys, I'm a handful of peanuts, like it or lump it. And I tend to really like it. Um, you like a handful of peanuts? I do like a handful of peanuts. Handful you might peanuts. know them as, uh, no, peanuts. Handful of peanuts. Peanuts. It's always yeah. the peanuts with you. <laughs> so what we did after purchasing that parcel, you and I put together two different marriages of casks. Four casks in one blend. We'll call it a blend, even though it's, you know, bourbon from a single distillery. It's a blend of casks from that distillery. And then we took another four casks and married those together. And then we hosted at the Connecticut headquarters uh, a tasting where 18 single cast nation members came in. Oh, did, did, did we host that? Oh, we, we hosted that, did we? Well, it's the royal way. <laughs> I open the door, you walk through it. <laughs> and we, uh, we I must I must be the Megan and the other fella in this one then. Huh? Who's Megan mar- married to? The fuck are you talking about? Megan Markle, they just left the Royals. Megan and Oh, the girl Harry, from Suits. Is his name? Yeah, Harry. Yeah, the, the girl the girl from Suits and the boy from the British royalty machine. Yeah. They've left, about, they've left the royal family, Joshua. I, I know they have, but... They've left the royal family. So when you say it's the royal we uh-huh. hosting, mm-hmm. I must be the Meghan Markle of the group because I wasn't present. Ah, uh, okay. 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 That, yeah. Okay. I didn't, know, I didn't okay. know if I was just being really slow on that or yep. if it was just really dumb. And I think it's nope. six and two threes. Which you think is 18. So that gives you your answer. So Jason. Joshua. We put these four cask marriages in front of 18 different single cast nation members. And one, one. One, one. One, one. And the other lost. We, we gave this bottling a, a, a name. And the name of this bottling is simply Pappy Nonsense. And this was a collaboration that we did with our friends from Hello from the Magic Tavern podcast. And uh, if you don't know the podcast, one of the main characters, Usador the Blue, the Blue Wizard, goes by many different names. And one of the names he goes by is Pappy Nonsense. And so we named this bottling after Pappy Nonsense. It has nothing to do with any other Pappy, for those of you that might be curious about that. It's not even spelled the same. 
a name coined by you during our interview with Adol Rafai, who plays Chunt from the podcast. That's right. If you want to... You get to hear a little bit of yourself in that podcast. You, you could be a comedy writer. You, you, know, you clearly have the chops. I definitely have the chops. Said nobody listening to this podcast. <laughs> so as long as the Pappy Nonsense bottlings are in our warehouse, we will put these on sale via lottery on Thursday, March 5th. And so you enter the lottery. If you win the lottery... You will get a secret URL to purchase up to two bottles of this whiskey. Because four casks gave us far more bottles than we're used to, right? Yeah, it's, it's a nice batch outturn. And when we did the batch of the light whiskey that yeah. had an IPA matured component to it, mm-hmm. we were able to sell those two and even three per person. This one we'll, we'll keep it two. We'll keep it two. But, but yeah, with, with a batch... There's a little bit more wiggle room, and yeah. you and you and I, you know, we're big fans of buying in in pairs. It's always good to open one, get a taste of it, leave a closed on the shelf for another day. Exactly. So I think that's an important way to drink. So those bottles will go on sale for the crisp amount of ninety five dollars per bottle. But if yeah. you whether you get one bottle or two bottles, ten dollars flat rate shipping. That's it. That's it, yeah, excited to get that one out, get more people tasting it, especially those who take a plunge thinking they don't like this distillery and will take us to task for us pronouncing a very different profile. What I like about this selection is it's not just you and I saying this is a very undistillery-like flavour profile, but it was also the nation members who were in attendance helping with the selection. Mm. Several of them have come out to say, you would not peg it for this distillery, given how we talk about exactly. this distillery. Exactly, exactly. Yep. So it's yeah. not just you and I, but I think, I think our nation members trust you and me at this point in our mm-hmm. relationship with them. We would not so. steer them wrong. No, no, I wouldn't, that's for sure. And I, um, I like to think I wouldn't. No, I'd like to think that too. No matter how many times Joshua tells me to. What other news do we want to share with? Well, we do, like you had said, we have some whiskey that is on a boat headed over to us. Yeah, we have the sixth retail release is finally on its way here. As well as some more casks that will be sold online as well. So let's give the retail information. Because okay. I know we've announced this a few times, mm. but it's actually on a boat. It's finally on its way <laughs> to these shores. <laughs> I have been checking my wine searcher yeah. and single cast nation is being depleted across the nation. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give a list of both the whiskeys for retail release number six and... The, the other whiskeys that will be going online, but I'm going to do this in rapid fire oh. succession. Because and you're going to leave the listeners to decide which no. is for retail and which is for online. I, I'm not. That'll a be a fun man, game. Jason. No, that'll be a fun d- game, Jason. Wow, listeners, I apologize for this man. So, 
<laughs> here, here is what we have for Singlecast Nation. Here it comes in quick fire. Not the first time Joshua has said this to somebody. Retail, <laughs> retail release number six. We have a Lincoln. Tw- you'll miss the release. We have a twenty-three-year-old Ben Nevis from a bourbon hogshead. Hmm. We have an Altmore, an eight-year-old Altmore from mm-hmm. a bourbon barrel. It's a first fill bourbon barrel. Mm-hmm. The Ben Nevis is a second fill bourbon hogshead, by the way. Then we have a 30-year-old Altmore, and that is from a first fill sherry butt. Oh, boy, oh, boy. And then we have a 10-year-old that's just, it says Rudravor, which is peated whiskey from a distillery in Speyside. Their whiskeys go into a very famous blend. <laughs> and th- so that's peated, speed, peated Speyside whiskey, uh, 10 years old. And then we have for a grain whiskey, we've got a 26 year old Invergordon from a first fill bourbon barrel. First fill, that's remarkable on that one. Right? Yeah, I was very excited. Well, you know, it, it makes me think of what was John Glazer looking for when he. When he designed hedonism, when he was looking for stuff for Oak Cross and Asylum and all this, always focusing on first fill, first fill, first fill, especially with the grain. There's something about that wood that really interacts so nicely with, mm-hmm. with grain. And then we have the very first ever independently bottled single cask from the Milk and Honey Distillery out of Tel Aviv, Israel, to be sold in the U.S. Pretty excited about that. It's a two-year-old from a first-fill bourbon barrel. And having been one of the two people who selected that, it's really, really damn tasty. It's, I would say, it's remarkable tasting. That and then perfect segui into what our online releases are. We have yet another milk and honey release. <laughs> the second ever milk and honey single cask to be sold in the United States. The one for online sales. That is also two years old, but that's from a first fill uh, Jamaican rum cask. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's pretty fun. Yeah. And, and I think at this point, Amrut mm-hmm. has done so much heavy lifting for the, the world of young overseas single malts that I don't think people seeing a number two on a a whiskey distilled and matured in Israel will have any difficulty imagining how quickly that matured. Yeah, when they, I think most people know standard Amrits on the shelf are three years old, you know, typically speaking. And yeah, they both are hot climate, whiskey maturing, Areas they're both losing twelve to fourteen percent in angel share every year, so their stuff's going to mature a lot faster than it would yeah, I, in say Scotland. I included a six-year-old Paul John single cast bottle by Cadenheads in one of the last meetings mm. of my Palouse Whiskey Society, mm-hmm. and nobody batted an eyelid at, at the six. Nobody expected it to be young. Nobody expected it to be raw. They expected it to be a fully fledged overseas single malt yeah. yep. uh, with enhanced maturation. I, I love I love the fact that whiskey drinkers 
have become comfortable with that world. And Same. those yeah. to whom we speak on this podcast, to whom we sell across the nation, they're the type of consumer who absolutely has a handle on this. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So in addition to that, we've we've got a host of others. We have a another blended malt coming, and this is from a first fill sherry butt, and that whiskey is that's a, a ten year old blended malt. Mm. And then we bottled another Aaron. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that's, our third our third from the Aaron family. Wonderful yep. to see. What's the maturation on it? It's a nine year old first fill bourbon barrel. There's that first fill bourbon again. Wonderful, Big, bright, crisp, fruity whiskey. Delicious. Uh, Cask 88. I'm never going to forget Cask 88. Very difficult to forget that. And then we're doing another uh, Angostura rum, a Trinidadian rum. That's a 12-year-old from a sherry hogshead. So between release number six for, for a retail range, where we have six different bottlings there, Mm-hmm. And and then online, you've, we have Pappy Nonsense, which is just about to be released. Mm-hmm. But then then come late March, early April, we have the the blended malt, the Aaron, the rum, also, co- and then the milk and honey. So that's another four. So four plus six in the retail plus Pappy Nonsense. That's eleven whiskeys. <laughs> about to be for sale. So we're going from famine to feast pretty quickly here. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Okay. Okay, there's there's some things we could we could say there about tariffs, but I'm going to I'm going to move along cuz that's all good news in the news segment. Should we pivot out of our news onto a quick email and then get out of here? Yeah. We did the mailbag episode and it was very well received. Incredibly well received. Love it. Love when the mailbag episode goes live and people start reaching out to us about some of our answers or having their emails read and covered. Mm -hmm. We we got a follow-up from Richard Baum. Baum. B-A-U-M. Baum? Baum. Baum. Think of... Think of bow more, but it's baum. Ah, uh, boom. Gotcha. No. Gotcha. Gotcha. Richard Boom wrote to us. <clears throat> and what did Richard write? What did the good Richard Bloom say to us? Oh, jeez, it's baum. And I tell you, he's upset with us right now because you're really screwing up his name. But, you know, he says to us, <laughs> he says, well, let me read it. Let me read it. He says... Okay, yeah, what what does Richard Baum say? He says, many thanks for giving this a good airing. Just just to remind our listeners, covered in this, in his original email, was a question about, you know, we're in the alcohol industry. Mm -hmm. And do we have to be a little bit careful, a little bit sensitive to our intake? And he talked a little bit about... You know, you you sometimes see um, those in the industry die at earlier ages. And and our response was, well, maybe we just pay a bit more attention uh, when you see them, you know, Mm. pass away early um, within our industry. So 
So he wrote to us and said, many thanks for giving this question a good airing. You're right, of course, that you can't draw any conclusions from anecdotal evidence of untimely deaths. And I've likewise found that I can't drink beer as much as I would like anymore. <laughs> We're all gentlemen of a certain age. Mm-hmm. I've switched to kombucha ah. when I'm in the mood for a brew at home. That's good. It's, yeah, it's the first non-alcoholic drink I've enjoyed as a booze substitute. Yep. And yep. then he, he closes out by saying, finally, I'm gutted. I missed you guys at Drummer's Club. Even though I was on a Caribbean vacation at the time. That's living well, isn't it? But he says, looking forward to hearing that episode where you and I recorded a live podcast with the Drummers Club in New York just a week or two ago. Which was pretty amazing because... It was raucous. It it was raucous. And so was you, me, Charlie Prince, one, one of the founders of of Dreamers Club, actually Stephen Winch, who's now a specialty drinks, by the way, um, aka the Whiskey Exchange, uh, started it, but Charlie kind of took it over with his friend Marlon. And uh, so it was a live conversation between you, me, and Charlie, and we had some really interesting whiskeys that we shared that evening that people will hear about once the, once they hear it. Terrific cameos that they will hear about and once that's they what hear I was it. Going to say that the the <laughs> the industry uh, celebrities in the room was was pretty remarkable. But I, I have a bit of a bone to pick with you, Jason. Checks out. You said Caribbean. Uh huh. Isn't it Caribbean? It depends on your potato or your potato or your tomato or your tomato. It's like a baum or a boom. <laughs> it is. It's it a is question a from okay. from Richard Blom over there. So <laughs> you know, not Blum, <laughs> or she's not even Judy Blum. Oh wow! Imagine if he was married to Judy Bloom. That would be awesome. What if he's Fudge? She's Fudge. He's Fudge. He's I'm Robert. Your glue. He's Fudge. <laughs> we need to move on. You, I, yeah. you, yeah, me. You do consume the occasional kombucha. I would say that I probably have two or three kombucha a week. I really like Whoa. it. Whoa. And, and my oldest daughter absolutely loves it. It's really uh, good for your gut, really good antioxidants in there, and uh, active cultures from the – there's this thing. To make kombucha, you use this thing called a scoby, which is – Different from a scooby? Different from a scooby. Because I ain't got a Scooby-Doo clue. SCOBY stands for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. And so you brew a tea and you sugar that tea. You have to get one of these SCOBYs. And you can get them, like we got our SCOBYs from friends. And you put it in the kombucha and the SCOBY eats the sugar and carbonates the drink. So it's just like a beer except... I guess if you let it brew too long, it, it'll definitely produce alcohol. But all of those really good things that you get from the conversion of from sugar to whatever the heck the SCOBY is doing is really good for you. It makes for a tasty, tasty little beverage. Could you see yourself drinking it of an evening in place of a beer like our friend Richard? No, because when I drink a beer, I'm definitely looking for a little bit of that effect mm. to come along with the drink. 
a little lighter headedness. Yeah, and uh, as much as I'll enjoy it, you know, I'll, I'll have it with a meal or something like that. You know, nowadays, because I am drinking less, because I am an over 40-year-old man, you know, I would reach for a beer after I've mown the lawn or something like that, and I can't picture myself saying, oof, did a great job mowing the lawn. Let me grab a refreshing kombucha. It's, it's just not the same. Like, you want that refreshing beer that also kind of takes the edge off a little bit. Maybe maybe you need to want to change, Joshua. Maybe well, change won't find you until you're willing to change. Listen, when it's time to change, it's time to rearrange. <laughs> and when it's time to change. It's sad the fact that I can just see by looking at your eyes that you're going to make that type of pivot. I knew exactly what you were doing there before you did it, mm-hmm. just because I could see the change in your eyes. You go mm. to your faraway place. And mm. the music starts playing when the way back of your head. That's nice. Okay, so thank you for, to Richard for uh, following up on his yeah. mailbag question and for listening to the mailbag episode. Mm. I'm glad he enjoyed our coverage of his question. A uh, reminder for listeners, you don't have to wait for just the mailbag episode. If you do have a question for us, simply reach out to us at questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com as Joshua always reminds us there is no E in whiskey. But there is an E in questions. Are there other ways in which people can reach out to us to pose questions to it, Jason? Nope. Okay, so there are, and those (laughs) other ways... (laughs) If I said no, I knew I didn't have to relay them to anybody. You could uh, reach out to us. Let me unpeel a lozenge while you... Update. This is me unpeeling my lozenge here. Let me, oh gosh, that's terrible. Okay, here we go. You, you've heard us clinking the glasses, but here we go. Here comes a very cherry echinacea and zinc lozenge mm. for the sick boy on the podcast. Okay, I'm ready for you to tell a bit about the addresses. So. <laughs> If you want to pose a question, you can email us, as Jason had mentioned before, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. You could also uh, send us a question on our Facebook page or our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and in the search bar, look for One Nation Under Whiskey. And you could tweet at us, at One Nation Whiskey. Or you can send us an Instagram message, at One Nation Under Whiskey. And as Jason said... While there is an E in question, there is never an E in whiskey, at least not for us. So if you want to reach out to us, do so in one of those four ways. And we're, we're happy to, um, to answer your questions on the air. And also, if you wanted to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts mm, and post yes. some nice words, then we will we'll name check you. We'll, we'll get you out there just as we did with... J.M. at 1980, earlier on in this episode. Exactly. Yeah. I, th- I think I think this brings us to the end, Joshua Hatton. I think we've done what we came here to do, and then some. And then some. All right, so. I'm glad we've kicked off season four with a two and a half hour episode. Right? There's nothing else for it. 
<laughs> I don't so, know with final editing if it'll be two hours or two and a half, but it's going to be damn long. Which is not something you get to say very often. On that note, Jason. <laughs> it's always the peanuts with you. Always to the monkey. Monkey, what do you call them? Monkey nuts? Monkey nuts. What did monkey one nuts. sample bottle say to the other sample bottle? It said... <laughs> Cheers, listeners. Chin chin. Two chins. Cheers. Okay. <laughs>